I know that after 30 years, 30 something years as a journalist, I have never come across a conspiracy theory that really stood up. Ever. And when we came across this, it became pretty obvious when we did some serious level research that this wasn't a theory, that this was a conspiracy. As we realized that this story was, was real, as opposed to another conspiracy theory, it was something that we had to do. We had to get it right. We're talking about Tim, the biggest criminal gang in history. They walked through Europe, they stole every central bank's gold reserves, they raped and raided every single monastery, museum, anything they could. He told them where the treasures were. But it was also the treasure of what became Operation Paperclip. Part of that deal was, this guy never sees the light of day again. So you make sure that he's kept very quiet. So much of the information that comes out is overshadowed by what strikes me as idiocy. Stuff you can't prove. So we should go after this in, a, in a, as forensic a way as we can to tell the story of what really happened. And it's not the story we were told. Definitely not the story I was told. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. We have got an absolutely mind-bending edition of the program for you, my friends. This time on the program, we are going to examine one of the great mysteries of World War II as we welcome Gerard Williams, co-author of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. In this expansive conversation, we are going to go in-depth on the Hitler death hoax conspiracy, including why the mainstream version of Hitler's death is fundamentally flawed, how Martin Bormann played a critical role not just in Nazi Germany, but also in laying the groundwork for the escape plan years before the war ended. We'll learn about Hitler's likely journey to Argentina and his post-war life there, as well as the children fathered by Hitler and his ultimate fate years after the war ended. Beyond those details, of course, we are going to discuss some of the more obscure and tangential elements of World War II, including the extensive plunder of European art by the Nazis, how their poor organizational skills facilitated a victory for the Allies, and how there were actually plans by high-ranking Nazis to twist the war into a unified battle, teeming with the Allies against the Russians. Altogether, it is a absolutely thrilling edition of the program, which will likely have you looking at world history in a whole new light as Gerard Williams makes the case for the escape of Adolf Hitler. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gerard Williams, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Gerard Williams has been an international television journalist and filmmaker for over 30 years. 
After graduating from journalism college, he was hired by Viz News, the international TV news agency, where he spent two years before moving to Australia, working for ABC and Australian Associated Press, as well as being an independent radio news correspondent for two years. Upon his return to the UK, he rejoined Viz News, and after various jobs elsewhere in TV news, was eventually appointed deputy editor at Reuters Television. He has worked as a foreign duty editor at the BBC, Sky News, and APTN. Gerard has worked and reported in over 65 countries, and has set up and managed slash edited projects as diverse as Super Channel News, European Business Today for BSP Sky, Breakfast Editor at European Business News, and Managing Editor at Africa Journal. Altogether, Gerard Williams has been responsible for hundreds of live hours of broadcast television. He has covered most of the top international news stories of the last 20 years, including the fall of the Soviet Union, the war in Yugoslavia, the Rwanda Genocide, the First Gulf War, the aftermath of the Second Gulf War and the U.S. occupation of Iraq, and the 2004 tsunami. He has recently made documentary films in Kenya, Argentina, and Albania, which have been broadcast by Al Jazeera International, SIC in Portugal, Channel 4 News in the UK, and Sky News. He is currently post-producing a major drama documentary, Grey Wolf, and is developing various feature film proposals. The website for the book and the film Grey Wolf can be found at www.greywolfmedia.com. Pretty simple, all one word, greywolfmedia.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 3rd, 2012. Gerard Williams, talking about Grey Wolf, the escape of Adolf Hitler, on BOA Audio, Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio, Season 7. And we have got a real barn burner of an episode for you, my friends. I absolutely cannot wait to dig into this one. Our guest is Gerard Williams. He's the co-author alongside Simon Dunstan of the book, Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. And I just finished this book this morning. Folks, this is magnificent. It is absolutely amazing. It is a tour de force. I highly recommend this one. If you want, if you're looking for a summer book, to pick up and read during your downtime in the next few months, go out and get Grey Wolf because it is tremendous. I absolutely love this book. I actually had to pace myself because as I started reading it, I was getting closer and closer to finishing it way before we were going to do the interview because it was so engrossing. So I had to actually kind of put it down and come back to it as we got closer to the interview because I knew I was going to fly through the rest of the book. It is just absolutely tremendous. I can't put this one over enough and I'm just thrilled to have Gerard Williams here to talk about this really mind-blowing research that he's done and put together here with Simon Dunson, as I said, in Grey Wolf. So welcome to the program, Gerard. I cannot wait for this conversation, my friend. Thanks very much, Tim. That's extremely kind of you. Extremely kind of you. I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you found it interesting. Oh, interesting is an understatement. I, like I said, I just could not put this thing down. It was just tremendous. Now, we usually start out with some bio, some background, you know, tell the folks at home, who is Gerard Williams, you know, and how did you and Simon sort of, uh, you know, find your way towards looking at this sure. Hitler sure. conspiracy? 
Well, I've been a, a television journalist for uh, coming up to 34 years now. Um, I've held senior positions at Reuters Television, uh, the BBC as a foreign duty editor, um, Sky News, uh, run my own news production companies, um, been to about 65 different countries, um, covered the war in Yugoslavia, um, out of Belgrade, Serbia, um, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, um, a couple of trips into Baghdad, um, post-Gulf War One and post-Gulf War Two. Um, so I've been, I've been a serious journalist um, for all of my life. Um, and Simon is a military historian who's written 50-odd books. Um, he's an expert on the fighting armored vehicle, really, but um, as much an expert on World War Two as you could um, as you could hope to find. It, this all started off, it, it's, a, it's a strange story, really. I was sitting in a car park at the Al Rashid Hotel in Baghdad in the Green Zone in 2003, uh, wearing a flak jacket and a helmet, and um, I couldn't find the car that was meant to be taking me to the airport uh, down the murder mile. So I sat down, lit a cigarette, and thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm too old. And so uh, it sort of came on me suddenly. Um, little did I know that my, my best friend and, and great cameraman, Bill Stout, was feeling the same way coming out of Afghanistan with dysentery. <laughs> so uh, we got together in London, Bill and I, and decided that we'd go back to doing long-form documentaries, long-form documentary programs, which we'd done a lot of together in Africa. And although he'd been to Central America, neither of us had ever been to Latin America, and so we thought we'd start with A. And Bill, unfortunately, got very ill, um, so I went out with another great cameraman um, and did a series of documentaries in Argentina on the children of the disappeared. Um, so during the 1970s, there was a horrible, dirty war in Argentina. They killed 30,000 of their own people. Um, and when they kidnapped or captured pregnant women, they usually allowed them to give birth before murdering them. And then their children would be handed on to members of the military or the justice. Justice, what a terrible word to use in this situation. To be brought up. So we did a, a long documentary on that. Um, a piece on veterans from the Malvinas Falklands War, which we're uh, marking the 30th anniversary of just at the moment. Um, and another piece about the footballer, the soccer player, you'd call him Diego Maradona, uh -huh. who's something of a legend around the world. And while I was there, uh, we were in, in country for know, seven weeks and fell in love with Buenos Aires, which is an amazing city, wonderful place. And was looking around for stories to do, to come back and do. Um, and I came across this story that is, is pretty well known in Argentina, uh, that Adolf Hitler had escaped at the end of World War II and had gone to live in San Carlos de Bariloche, or very near to San Carlos de Bariloche, down near the Andes. And I thought, brilliant. I've never done a conspiracy theory story in my life. I could do with a laugh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to look at it. And, you know, I'm going to do a silly film about a man escaping who we all thought was dead in the bunker to Argentina and living there for 17 years. Um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, as we got further into looking at this story and started to look at the forensic evidence or the lack of forensic evidence in the bunker, and the lies that were told, we started to realize that we were on something much more serious than a silly conspiracy theory story, but we were on something that was actually a serious conspiracy, what I think is the greatest confidence trick of the 20th century. Um, and that, that's how it started out. It started out with us picking a country beginning with A in Latin America. And... Um, 
<laughs> wanting to do a silly story because I've done too many serious stories in my life. There you go. Yeah. Well, the the book is exciting too, in a sense, for for two reasons. Kind of that you that you sort of elucidated here in the bio part. You know, you're a serious journalist, and I mean, with all due respect to the folks who've been on my show who are conspiracy researchers, a lot of them aren't as decorated in the in the world of uh, you know journalism as you are. So here we have someone from the from outside the conspiracy realm looking at this, which is tremendous, which is what we need. And then additionally. Um, you know, this Hitler story, it's floated around in the conspiracy realm for a long time, but it's, but with the yeah, exception of maybe so. a handful of books, I think there was one book or two that came out, like, usually it's relegated to, uh, maybe a paragraph somewhere, or a chapter, if you're lucky, or a couple of pages in a conspiracy book. This is well, really... They usually, usually involve um, Antarctic spaces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Nazi UFOs on the moon, um, the bell, and the incredible technology that the Nazis had at the end of the war, um, and all those things. And people immediately shy away, I think, um, from what I'd call the, the more left field approach to to this incredible story. Um, the, the reality is that there's no reason to go into left field. The information that you need to find out the truth about this was all published at the time um, and is all there. And there are still eyewitnesses alive today who saw him um, in Argentina in the 50s. Exactly. This is like so grounded in reality that, as I said, it's just, it, it, as you get deeper into it, it's just really riveting stuff. Now, obviously, I, I, one, of, one of the things I, I, I really need to do always when I'm, when I'm on a story is I need to walk the ground. You know, you can't do this off a desk. Yeah. Um, you can't do it off, well, you do a lot of it off the Internet and, you know, places like the uh, National Archives in Kew. Um, and I've been over to America a couple of times to talk to people and, and look at things there. But we've been to Argentina, Simon and I, 17 times. Wow. Um, you know, so we, we have distinctly walked the ground. We've put our time in, we've spoken to people face to face, um, looked at the archives in Argentina. Um, and it's something that, you know, I felt as we realized that this story was, was real as opposed to another conspiracy theory, it was something that we had to do. Um, we had to get it right because, you know, putting out a, a book like Grey Wolf um, immediately opens you up after my career to a huge amount of ridicule, um, you know, from your peers and everybody else. Luckily, most of my peers that I have the respect for um, have now read the book after calling me a nutter <laughs> originally. Um, have now read the book and have been um, swayed. I'm not sure they're convinced because it goes against so much accepted accepted history. But um, they have distinctly been swayed, and people have stopped calling me a nutter, which is a, a nice thing. <laughs> That's always a good thing, right? Yes, I hope so. Um, now, I guess let's sort of like dive into the book because I have I took some notes as I was going along, and, and sure. uh, there's elements in the book that are certainly, you know, tangential to the overall story that I thought were worth sort of uh, bringing out into light as we discuss the the whole book in general. And then one of the first things I thought was interesting is, like, early in the book, you talk about how there, below Hitler in the in the power structure of the Nazis, there was, like, always this infighting amongst Bormann, and, and, and I may get some of these names wrong, so bear sure. with me, but, you know, because there's so many different characters, but, like, Goebbels and Goering and, and the guy, all the, like, the, you know, the number two, number three, number four guys, they're always sort of fighting each other to be the ultimate number two, which I thought was really interesting, and you guys point out in the book that that's kind of how Hitler held on to his power, by always having these infights amongst his subordinates and also that 
you know, contrary to what people may think about the Third Reich, a lot of their government institutions I, I see in the book that you say were massively ineffective. Yeah, a complete mess. Yeah. I mean, big government in the worst sort of way. Um, I mean, some of them were horribly effective. Um, you know, the racial part of it, the, um, the murder of six million Jews, um, was immensely effective. Um, but a huge amount of it wasn't. And their military planning was, was poor in some ways. Whereas, you know, the Russians built one tank, the T-34, and it, it hammered its way through Nazi armor. Um, the Germans built 30 different types of tank, um, and most of them specified like a modern BMW. Whereas, you know, a T-34 looked like the inside of a tin can, uh, but it was effective. So they weren't very effective as, a, as either a political or, um, or in their military planning. I mean, yeah, they, were, they were effective immediately, but they didn't last, thank God. And the, the whole divide and conquer thing is something, you know, that despots have used throughout history. You never let one of your subordinates get into a position of power where they could threaten you. Um, and Hitler was quite clever about that. Right, right. And the, and, and the main guy who kind of emerges from the book as like the key player to this whole thing is Martin Borman. I mean, his fingerprints are all over this book. It, it's, Everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, I'm sure to historians and people who are well versed in, in, you know, the story of World War II, they're, they're knowledgeable about this guy. But for me personally, it was like, this is sort of like one of the most under-discussed characters in history, because it really seems like he was pulling all these strings. I mean, he's referred to as um, Hitler's secretary in a number of um, in a number of serious historical um, books. I mean, Bormann was much more than Hitler's secretary. Bormann was the power behind the throne. Hitler said that if he needed something done, it was Bormann who always got it done. Bormann was a, a criminal genius. Um, they called him the Telex General. He never took military rank. Um, so he didn't become a general or field marshal or, you know, Obergruppenfuhrer of the SS or anything. He always stayed as party secretary, head of the chancery, and he never wore a flash uniform. Um, he just stayed in the background. But as the war continued, especially from 1943 on, if you wanted to get to Hitler, you had to go through Bormann. And Bormann was also the man who had sorted out all the finances behind the Third Reich, and especially behind Hitler. Hitler was, uh, I suppose, um, I'm trying to think of major sports stars in America who put their name to uh, brands and everything else. So you'd have Magic Johnson, you'd have David Beckham here. Yeah. But Hitler got a percentage of every stamp that was sold in the Third Reich. He got a percentage on every book that was sold in the Third Reich. Every time his image was used, he got a percentage of that. And this was all organized by Martin Bormann, who ran his financial affairs and made Hitler a millionaire very, very quickly. And we're talking, you know, dollar millionaire in the 1930s. So this was real money. Millions aren't worth what they used to be. Yeah. So Martin Bormann was, was key to the structure of the party. He had... An, an index, a Rolodex on everybody of any importance. He knew exactly what their weaknesses were, he could run them, and he was the man who everybody had to funnel through to get anything done with Hitler. It was Bormann who was the key to this. Yeah, yeah, just tremendous stuff. I was just completely like, you know, he emerges as you're going along in the book and just keeps getting more and more uh, central to this entire plot, where it's just like, my goodness, like... You know, they should have been looking for this guy. He he sounds like he was really uh, 
was kind of running a lot of the show in a lot of ways. And the great thing is, they did look for him. I mean, Foreman and Hitler was not ever found guilty of anything. Um, they didn't put him on trial at Nuremberg, despite the fact they didn't have his body. Um, they had no forensics to say that he was dead. They didn't have Martin Bormann's body either, and Bormann had disappeared. But he was put on trial uh, for crimes against humanity at Nuremberg, the International Military Tribunal, and was found guilty and sentenced to death. But one of the most clever things about this whole, um, what happened at the end of the war, is how people were seen to die. <laughs> people were seen to um, be killed. People were seen to be buried. And yet, as you look at the forensics available to you, I mean, the great example of me is the Gestapo, Obergruppenführer, the head of the Gestapo, um, Muller. Gestapo Muller, he was known as. He was buried by his family in Berlin in 1945, and they put a lovely little headstone saying to our dear daddy and everything else. Well, when his body was exhumed in 1963, there were three different bodies in that coffin. <laughs> Two of them were female or bits of female bodies, and another was male. But it wasn't Heinrich Müller. It wasn't the Gestapo chief. He'd set it up. And in the same way that, you know, we propose, and we're pretty sure of, the fact that two people did die in the bunker in Berlin, but they were murdered. They, weren't, they didn't commit suicide. And they were lookalikes, Adolf Hitler and David Brown. So people who saw those bodies burnt saw what they expected to see. Yeah. It's also the same with Martin Bormann. You know, he's supposedly dead in Berlin in 1945. And then the West Germans go on to DNA test what they say the remains they find in the 1970s are. Um, and they prove that it's definitely Martin Bormann. But the DNA test done on Bormann in the 90s was from an 83-year-old. The comparison came from an 83-year-old unnamed relative of Martin Bormann's, despite the fact he had six, seven children who were available for them to test directly against. And they've never named this person, the West German government. It, it just stinks, unfortunately. There were so many Nazis in the West German government after the war, uh, people who held positions of authority under National Socialism, and they just covered this up. They covered the whole thing up, and they did it very cleverly. Exactly. We'll get into sort of the motivations of all of the cover-up in a little bit. Now, what, another thing that in the book, another aspect of the book that was just totally elucidating and just uh, really opened my eyes and sort of dropped my jaw is the best way to say it, was uh, the extensive discussion in the book on the plunder of Europe that went yeah. on. And I just, I mean, you kind of, I, I'd kind of heard about this, but never in the detail that's provided in, in, in Grey Wolf. It was just tremendous stuff. Like how, talk a little bit about, about that plunder, because I was amazed by, you know, not just the, the theft of all the gold, essentially, like throughout Europe, but also the just tremendous artwork that was taken, you know, by sheer force. We're talking about, Tim, the biggest criminal gang in history. They walked through Europe. They stole every central bank's gold reserves. They raped and raided every single monastery, museum, anything they could. At the same time, when they, when they sent people off to the death camps, instead of just, you know, executing people on the ground in the East, like the Einsatzgruppen did, but when they got rid of German jury and Austrian jury, they took all their belongings. Yeah. So they took everything from their insurances to their shareholdings to their houses to their mortgages to their arts to their gold to their cash in the bank. They took everything. They amassed the largest fortune in history. And 
1943, Martin Bormann realized, I think, that the game was up, that they could not win militarily, that once it came out what they'd been doing in the camps and on the Eastern Front especially, that they wouldn't be able to um, run the brand anymore, if that makes sense to you, and yeah. they couldn't walk around wearing swastikas and in their Hugo Boss-designed uniforms with their black leather boots on. So Borman set up a network of over 745 companies outside of Germany and managed to ship huge amounts of money out to these companies. Borman also instructed all the major German companies, and Krupp, for instance, who built, well, cannons is how they started off, but they built a lot more after that, biggest metal workers in the world at one stage. They themselves set up 700 front companies around the world in neutral places like Argentina, Turkey, Syria, Switzerland, of course, um, and other countries where they had influence, so that would be places like Brazil and Paraguay. And, if you, you know, today isn't the only time you can do an international money transfer. People have been doing telex or telegraph international money transfers since the 1920s. So they managed to shift out a huge amount of wealth. I think the idea that the moving you know, hundreds of tons of gold and, and paintings and things like that out of Europe is probably over-exaggerated. But they did ship and move a great deal of material out by ship from Spain especially. And we're talking about the wealth of occupied Europe. Yeah. A huge amount of which has still not been accounted for. At the end of World War II, I believe, and our researchers show us, that Martin Bormann, as part of the deal that he did with certain Americans to get himself, Hitler, and Müller out, he told them where the treasures were. And it wasn't just the treasures, for instance, in the Merkers mine, where there were um, oh, everything from Rembrandts to Van Goghs to you know, Roman statues to gold, jewels, crown jewels, everything else. But it was also the treasure of what became Operation Paperclip, People like Werner von Braun, the, um, the man behind the V1 and V2 rockets, who was taken to America along with 120 of his colleagues and effectively put the United States into space and on the moon. Yeah. Now, Werner von Braun's a great example of how people can be changed. The man was a colonel in the SS, which was removed from his files so that he could become a naturalized American. He was an early Nazi party member. He was responsible for the deaths of 8,000 civilians in Britain with his V-1 and V-2 rockets. But more importantly, he was responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of slave laborers in the factories in Germany that produced those weapons. Yeah. This man went on to be lauded by the United States. You know, he became a great American. His history was forgotten. Um, and how can you forget that? How can that be done? But he was a treasure. He was part of the loot that was done as the deal to enable Martin Bormann to take his part of the treasure out of Europe at the end of the war and to continue his plans to rebuild Germany. Right, right, exactly, yeah. And, and you talk about the, you know, like I was saying, you know, it's just jaw-dropping when you when you think about the plunder. There's a picture on page 61 in the book that's just like, it looks like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just <laughs> yes, like it all of these sacks of, of, of treasure hidden underground that, that they've discovered. And it's like, at first, uh, looking at it, and I thought they were body bags. And then I read the thing, and I was like, no, that's treasure. Like, this is yeah. insane. So it's an amazing amount. Um, you know, so much disappeared. Uh, the, the whole amber room from um, 
from Leningrad uh, disappeared completely, which was a, a treasure, of, you know, a whole room made out of amber for the Tsars. Yeah, I've heard and, about that. They've never found that, right? No, they've never found that. Goodness knows where, where it is, whether it was destroyed or whatever. But it's just one big example of the amount of material that they, they stole and took back to Germany. Um, you know, you hear, you hear stories all the time that there are still um, huge caches of material buried at the bottom of Lake Toplitz or in secret bunkers somewhere in the Bavarian Alps. Who knows if they're true or not? But what is true is that um, it was the largest theft in history, and most of it hasn't been recovered. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I'll, I was just just completely, uh, I guess, amused almost in a way at, at sort of the at the way Hitler would have them take all these paintings and and like the artists that he didn't respect or didn't like he would he would throw out and and you know would discard and some of the stuff was like paintings that ended up being worth like millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, he didn't, yeah, like, he didn't like Picasso or Modigliani or any of the uh, well, or Kaminsky, any of the sort of modern greats. Um, that didn't suit the uh, the little painter from um, from Austria. Yeah, it wasn't his idea of art. His idea of great art would have been Rembrandt and um, Wagner and uh, things that probably don't have a huge market today. Although you can still not buy a Rembrandt; they're too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's an example, like in the book, where they sold one of them for like four thousand dollars or something like that, and then it ended up selling like in the nineties for like four forty three million or something crazy like that. Yes, yes. It was. I wouldn't say they were, they were great art critics. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, as we're sort of going along here in the war and sort of setting the stage for, for you know, the ultimate conspiracy, uh, I also found it interesting, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, but it's worth, I guess, bringing back around, too, is just uh, beyond the the government aspect of the Third Reich, just how inept the, the military spending and the research seemed to be, because you point out in the book that... Uh, they spent, it's estimated, $2 billion for the development of the V-2 rocket, which is what the United States spent on the Manhattan Project. And yes. there was all this concern in the U.S., uh, you know, about how far along the Nazis were with developing nuclear weapons. And then later it was kind of found out that, that much to, you know, the way Hitler ran things, they, they had numerous agencies trying to develop a nuclear bomb, including the Postal Service, it seemed. <laughs> which is insane. <laughs> And I mean, one of the one of the major mistakes, thank goodness, was to dismiss so much of it as Jewish science. Yeah. And you know, when you think of Einstein, um, well, you know, you cannot dismiss them as just Jewish science. So I mean, they made a huge mistake, a huge error. Although they were close. I mean, I think we should realize that um, they just weren't as close as we were, and they had more uranium than we had, um, but they didn't know how to use it. Uh, and that was, you know, despite all this money that they spent on trying to do things, um, it was so uncoordinated that um, they didn't get off the ground. Yeah. And goodness, they didn't. I know. That's the that's the feeling I got, uh, you know, reading the, the section here about, about the war. It's like, you know, we... It seems like, you know, the, the, the Western world was tremendously lucky that they were so inept because if they hadn't been so, you know, disorganized and so you know, careless with the way they ran the war, it could have been a completely different outcome. Completely, but I, I think, you know, that the whole point of this is that it was run by a bunch of thugs. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of thugs and thieves. And um, while they were busy feathering their own nest, you know, Goering would, would become either marshal of the forests and of hunting, and he would take a license off everybody if they wanted to hunt in, in the German forests. Um, he built himself, you know, a huge art collection from 
from stolen stuff, um, had wild parties, was a big user of cocaine. Um, Himmler was off searching for the Holy Grail and the, the spirit, spirit of destiny and um, <laughs> all these things. Um, so we're not dealing with, with, with sane people at the top. Um, but we are dealing with some people at the top, including Martin Bormann, and I think Heinrich Muller as well, who is central to this, this story, who realized that these people were just not going to make it. You know, they, they weren't going to end up working out. And so they, uh, they worked out another way of working. Exactly, yeah. Well, they, they, you know, it seems like Borman was, you know, he was interested in Borman first <laughs> before, before he was interested in sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the cause, if you will. It, 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 he strikes me as a strange mix. I think he was intensely loyal to Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Um, he may not have believed everything that Hitler said, but he was intensely loyal to him. Um, and I think that loyalty went, you know, as far as to arrange his escape. But Borman wasn't just interested in Borman. I think Borman was much more interested in the continuation of Germany as a major power. Yeah. And he recognized that it could never be a Nazi state. But that, you know, there was an opportunity to come back after the war and, um, Maybe he thought he could come back. Maybe he felt he wasn't as soiled as the other members of the senior Nazis, but of course they all were. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Uh, it's it's just tremendous stuff, mind mind boggling as you get into it. Um, and the other part about the war that I thought was interesting, it, it, in contrasting the uh, the ineptitude of the German side, the Allies, it seemed like they, there was a tremendous amount of precision involved there. I was especially intrigued by the number of like specialist units that were involved uh, in on the Allies' side. Yet you talk about a lot of them in the book, like the Monument Men, this the group yes. of experts who were tasked with sort of going along with the ground troops to secure and find all the artwork and and key monuments and stuff, as well as. Uh, Fleming's advanced intelligence unit, the Red Indians, and uh, yeah, so the just, nuclear research. amazing. I mean, you can see why those spy stories and James Bond stories came out of the um, you know, post-war. It's because a lot of the stuff they actually did um, was so strange it sounded like fiction. But in fact, it was real. I mean, Fleming is an amazing character, you know, the creator of James Bond, uh, the writer of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, and the man responsible for going in and collecting an amazing amount of technology, which funnily enough ended up with the Americans, not with the British. Um, but these people ranged ahead of Allied forces. They seemed to know where everything important was, which I find uh, very interesting. It's if they were being told by somebody inside the Third Reich, you, should, you need to come here, you need to pick this up, you need to get this before the Russians come. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of these missions were targeted. They weren't just... Um, just thought of, and some of that will be down to us breaking ultra, breaking the uh, breaking the code network. But it can't all be down to us breaking ultra. We must have been told. We must have been given a shopping list by somebody inside. Right, right. Well, throughout the the the, the dis discussion of the war in the book, it is sort of a. Uh... It comes up again and again that there were members of the Nazi Party and, and you know people in power in Germany who seemed like they wanted to to do a flip on the war and end up teaming with the Allies to go after the Russians, which is, is you know insane as it sounds. You, you can almost see. It I mean, I, I think certain certain members, including Himmler, um, believed it up until you know the, the final days. I mean, Himmler was worried in the last days in the bunker 
um, whether he should greet General Eisenhower with the Hitler salute or offer him his hand to shake, uh, because he thought that the Allies couldn't run a conquered Germany without his SS in place. Um, so I mean, a huge amount of delusion that, you know, felt that the Asian hordes, as they described the Russians, were coming to sweep through Europe, and that it would be a Christian crusade led by Germany and America and Britain that would join up, even in the final days of World War II, um, and turn on the Russians. Um, thank goodness, well, thank goodness it didn't happen in the way that it, they wanted it to happen. But I mean, it was, a, it was a completely idiotic idea that that far down into the war, that we could have become allies with them against the Russians. Yeah, it's a, it's but they still believe crazy. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it, there's there's so much going on under the surface of the war that is that that I found out <laughs> reading the book that I was just like, what is you know, there's so much more to this story than than what you see on TV and everything. It's it's amazing. I, mean, I think the, the thing that's annoyed me most, Tim, and I'm, I'm, I am sort of an angry middle-aged man, maybe a bit older than middle-aged now, good grief, but I'm angry that it's not the end of the war that we were told. You know, even if you take away Hitler and Bormann escaping, the end of the war that we were told was that we beat Germany, we won, we all came home, home set to heroes in Britain, and your guys you know, had to go and face the Pacific, but thank goodness that didn't last. And we won, and you know we we destroyed this evil of Nazism. It's not strictly true. Um, that's the problem. It's not strictly true in any way, shape, or form. There are so many examples of how corporate America, what two presidents later went on to describe as the military-industrial complex, worked with the Nazis all the way through World War Two. Right. Which is something I find disgusting. Um, you know, major firms like Ford, who manufactured a third of the trucks that took Nazi troops to the front to kill our boys. ITT, who owned 22% of um, Fokker Wolf, which produced aircraft, um, fighter aircraft, which went after the bomber armadas over, over Europe. Um, IBM, which micromanaged with offices at Auschwitz and Dachau the computational side of the Holocaust. I mean, these are three major American companies. And they've been involved in Nazi Germany since the early 1930s. They've stayed involved in Germany after the war. I mean, what has fascinated me, and we find, we're finding out more material every day as we head into our second book, is that both Ford and ITT took the American government to um, court at the end of World War II because American planes had bombed their factories in Germany. <laughs> well, they bombed their factories in Germany accidentally. They were actually off the bombing lists. Um, which is another part of the war that we don't know, um, or has never been really made public. But the Ford plants and ITT's Fokker Wolf plants, both supplying major amounts of material for the Nazi war effort, were off the bombing list. They were both bombed accidentally at the end of the war by American bomber groups. And um, ITT and Ford took the American government to court, and we got tens of millions of dollars in reparations from them. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's scary. You know, it's like you think that... Why would that happen? Yeah, it's. And it's, can somebody explain that to me? I'm just, yeah, I'm just shocked. It's almost like World War II signified almost the end of nationalism and a and a move toward this sort of like corporate world we're in now. It's it's like these corporations have no national pride or national allegiance. No, they don't. They're just interested in making money. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I think it doesn't come through as strongly in Grey Wolf. It, it will come through much more strongly in um, our follow-up book, which we're working on at the moment is just how important these corporations were. 
just how important the military-industrial complex was and how these people, with the help of people like Alan Dulles of the CIA, John J. McCloy of the World Bank and the governor in Germany, Eleanor Lansing Dulles, all people I think are, are central to this, um, this conspiracy, how they ignored the wishes of the American people, how they ignored the wishes of their own presidents and carried on and did what the hell they liked. Exactly. And that's, that's wrong. It certainly is. In yeah. democracy, it's wrong. <laughs> All right, so we've kind of established sort of what was going on here in the war, and I guess we should really get into the, 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 you know, the escape, if you will. So I guess talk about sort of what set the stage for that, which was, I guess, Operation Eagle Flight and Operation Fjordland, uh, you know, which was all organized by Borman. Uh, you know, he, he sort of, as you and Simon explained in the book, you know, this was the groundwork. It wasn't just like Hitler, like, up and left Germany out of nowhere. Like, this was all laid out well in advance how it was all going to go down. And it was laid out with um, with lots of different possibilities, multiple possibilities, so that Borman knew and Muller knew, and because these guys were administrators and they're not stupid, they knew that various things would not become available, and as it got later and later, with the Russians knocking on the door in Berlin um, very loudly, their escape routes became fewer and fewer that they could get them out of it. I mean, the thing that has amazed me, Tim, is that we haven't made any of this up. You know, Time magazine reported that the Russians found a secret tunnel from the Chancery building, not from the bunker, completely different place, but from Hitler's private quarters in the Chancery building. And the Russians said that they found a deeper bunker, and from that bunker led an escape tunnel to the U-Bahn, the underground system in Berlin, which is still there today. And they found in this bunker enough food, water, ammunition, and clothing to last, I think, 12 people, two weeks or something. Oh, wow. Um, and they, it was hidden behind a panel that, that had been moved and in the Chancery building when they took it. Um, there are BBC reports of, of embedded BBC reporter um, with the Russians as he arrived, as they arrived at the bunker, and they don't find Hitler's body or Ava Brown's body. In fact, they probably aren't even looking for Ava Brown because nobody knows that she's Hitler's mistress, apart from some very um, very close personal friends who they knew as the Mountain People. They were handed six lookalikes of Hitler when they got to the bunker area. And after a while, they dismissed them. Uh, they dismissed one because he had darned socks. He had repaired socks, and they thought, well, you know, the Fuhrer of Nazi Germany wouldn't be wearing repaired socks. <laughs> and then you have all these stories that people like Hannah Reich flew him out in a helicopter and all this stuff that, that's been made up over the years. But we found a 1947 um, court report from Warsaw of a German pilot, Captain Peter Baumgart, who was actually um, a British citizen, ridiculously, from South Africa, but from German stock, and had come back, like many of the overseas Volksdeutsche did, um, to serve in Nazi Germany. And he'd been um, an experienced pilot during World War II, and his mission was to get into Berlin and fly Hitler, um, Eva Brown, Eva Brown's sister, um, General Hermann Fegelein, and another German general, out. And the dog. Um, and the dog, yeah, I'm pretty sure he would have taken Blondie with him. <laughs> um, this thing, this animal meant more to him than, than pretty much anybody else in the world, apart from probably Ava Brown. Um, but they, he managed to fly into the Hockenzollern Dam, which is this big um, road 
right next to a um, an underground station, which links to the underground station where the secret bunker exit came down. And in his court testimony, he describes how he got in, how he got out, how he flew them to Denmark. When the Polish judges first heard the testimony, they said, you're mad, and sent him away for psychiatric testing. And all this was reported by Reuters and the Associated Press. Six months later, he came back and he gave the same story with further details, and um, three eminent Polish psychiatrists said, well, he's not insane, uh, and we don't think he's lying. But although this was reported at the time, it was never followed up, and I, I find that amazing. And it was never followed up because, again, we come back to, I believe, Gestapo Miller's great plan of, hey, if you're dead, nobody looks for you. Right. That's, yeah, that's that's the, I guess that's the the brilliance of the plan in a way too. Now, what was, now I, I'm sure I'm sure this is all kind of speculative, but like, was it always the plan for Hitler to get out of there if things got, went, you know, when defeat was? No, I, I, I think I think he was meant to get out much earlier. Ah. And this was this was the last um, the last shot, really, you know, the last opportunity to get out. Uh, and you know, it's late. We're talking April 29th, so it's late. But what's interesting for us, and as part of the research, which is in the book, you know, we we explain how we took pictures of Hitler to the leading facial recognition expert in London, who works for the Metropolitan Police. He was heavily involved in um, the facial recognition stuff from the CCTV of the bombers who did the 7-7 attacks in London. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he's a, a very senior man. And we had a number of pictures that have been floating around of, of supposedly Hitler after the war, which would be the great smoking gun. Um, and he said, no, it's not Hitler. But we, we sent him some pictures for comparison, and he looked at the last pictures of Hitler taken on April the 20th, 19, um, 1945. And it's quite famous. It's Hitler handing out medals to children who have been uh, destroying tanks at Panzerfausts. And he's there with the leader of the Hitler Youth, Arthur Axman, or Artur Axman. And Professor Lenny came back and said, oh, yeah, that's not Hitler either. So I went back to him and I said, Professor, these are the last pictures of Adolf Hitler. He said, well, it's not Adolf Hitler. I checked and double-checked and double-checked. So on, the 8th, on April the 20th, 1945, Adolf Hitler's double was being used in Germany for public appearances. And I think Bormann had this lined up from about that date to make sure that this man was present at places Hitler was meant to be seen at. And he could not persuade Hitler to get out before the 29th. Um, Hitler was still hoping for some, some wonder, right. you know, wonder weapon of some sort. Um, was still hoping that his troops would, would, you know, continue to fight in the field. Um, and I think they were just all too tired then. Right. I think you, I think you make the point in the book too that, uh, at the time of the escape, there was like a two day window when it was going to be possible to get it done. And after that, it was probably not going to be able to, be, to happen to get him out. Yeah, after that, it was going to be too late. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Borman and Muller waited until May the 1st. But they weren't, I mean, there are many pictures of Martin Borman from the Third Reich, but not as many pictures as there are of Goering or Himmler or um, Goebbels or, or Adolf Hitler. And many of them don't identify Borman. So he wasn't seen as a, a key person, so he could probably blend into the background. Um, and Muller had organized you know, a way out for both of them. Um, but they didn't fly out. They had to be there in Berlin to make sure that the story would be believed. 
Ah, I see. Okay. Well, that, see that. See, because now we're we're kind of at a schism in a sense, where we 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 have the story that you guys are telling, and then we have sort of like the official story. Let's talk a little bit about the official story, because for most people, it ends in in in, in that in that bunker. You know, yep. as far as the mainstream historians are concerned, it does end in that bunker. So I guess. And all all that comes from is the report of one man, Hugh Trevor Roper, who was appointed by the head of MI6 in Great Britain to go in and tell the story of the last days of Adolf Hitler. Trevor Roper was an interesting choice. He was a medieval historian, I think, who had, had specialized in Thomas Cranmer, one of our bishops from the medieval time here and had worked in um, reading intercepted cables from Germany during World War II uh, for MI, MI6 or MI5. He had no detective experience, no forensic experience, nothing. And yet he was chosen as the man when we could have sent Scotland Yard in, we could have sent CIC in from your side, uh, we could have sent military intelligence in. Any group, any group of MPs with any experience would have been able to go in and do this. Yeah. But we sent this guy in. And he wrote this polemic, the last days of um, the last days of Hitler, which in many ways is a great book. It really nails the myth of Nazism and it, it destroys Nazism as a political culture and everything else. But Trevor Roper didn't actually do any investigation. He said that he'd interviewed Hannah Reich, who was Hitler's pilot and one of the last people to um, fly in, known historically to Berlin with um, her then-boyfriend who became head of the Luftwaffe when Hitler dumped Goering. Trevor Roper said he'd interviewed Hannah Reich. Hannah Reich said she'd never even met him. And after the war, she said, you know, what he said, I never said. Trevor Roper also said he interviewed um, the Luftwaffe adjutant, the Air Force adjutant, Hitler's adjutant in the bunker. And that guy, whose name escapes me for the moment, um, said, yes, he was interviewed by Trevor Roper. But he liked him, and every time he read the book, he used to laugh at Trevor Roper repeating his lies. Now, this wasn't anywhere near a thorough investigation. Um, the Russians admitted they'd found no body. They'd, interestingly, they did find Goebbels' body, and the Magda Goebbels' body. They'd committed suicide in the bunker on the Chancery grounds, and their bodies were partially burned. They were put on display alongside the Goebbels' six children who they had um, murdered so they wouldn't survive into a, a non-Nazi Germany. Um, but they found nobody that was Hitler. And, you know, Stalin said, well, we haven't found him. He's escaped to Spain or Argentina. Marshal Zhukov, who was running the Russian forces in Berlin at the time, said he could have escaped. There was an air, airfield at his disposal. Um, we have found nobody that could be Hitler. And yet, for some reason, I find this amazing. This medieval historian with no experience at all of anything like this before is sent in to write a report for British intelligence, and that report is accepted as gospel. The book has never been out of print. Hugh Trevor Roper, an amazingly arrogant man, and um, the man who would later go on to identify the Hitler diaries in the 1980s as real. Well, they weren't. They were written in Biro, which wasn't even around in 1941, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Um, and he got it completely wrong. He also got the deaths of Hitler wrong. He may well have just been fooled by Muller and Bormann's plan to have the lookalikes executed and possibly burnt in the, in, the, in the garden above the bunker. But those bodies were never found. 
Even the lookalike bodies weren't found. No, the, the, the burnt bodies of Hitler and Eva were never found. The Russians at one stage said they had found it, and they got um, parts of his skull and parts of his jaw, and they kept them in a, in a shoebox in, in Moscow for years. But an American scientist working for, um, I think, the History Channel Discovery yeah. went in and DNA tested those, so I think it's three years ago now, and the DNA tests were carried out back in the United States, and it turns out that the Hitler skull is that of a woman under 40. It's not even male. Now, do you think that you sort of uh, put forward the idea that there was like a covert deal involved here between, you know, Borman and, and the, the government, of the U.S. government, the allies, if you will, maybe? Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it was the government. I mean, it, it's, it's quite important to separate this okay. out. I think that... It, U.S. intelligence under Alan Dulles, who had been a corporate lawyer, who had been with uh, Martin Bormann in the 1930s in Berlin, as had John J. McCloy, who becomes an important character in the new book. McCloy had actually sat in the same box as Adolf Hitler at Berlin in the Olympics in 1936. These people represented everybody from Standard Oil right through IBM, through Ford, through ITT, all of the people who had Chase Manhattan Bank, all the people who had huge business in Nazi Germany. Okay. It was those people, this, this small grouping of very wealthy, very powerful industrialists and intelligence operatives who did the deal. I cannot believe, uh, maybe I just don't want to believe, that, um, that Truman would have been involved in something like this, um, or that Eisenhower knew post-war. Um, you know, I, just, I just don't see that it's the American government as such. I think it would have been impossible to keep it as secret as it has been kept. But I do think that people like Alan Dulles and his brother, Alan Dulles and John Dulles, um, were immensely involved in this. Um, they knew Bowman, they knew the Nazi Party, they knew all the industrialists, Krupp, Tussen, um, Siemens, all the other major German companies. And they had a good reason for Germany not being completely destroyed. I mean, there was, there was a plan, um, Secretary of State Morgenthau wanted to turn Germany back into an agricultural economy. Yeah. And, you know, basically he was going to treat it like, well, not as badly as Rome treated Carthage, where they killed everybody over three and salted the fields, but he was going to turn it back into a country that could never, ever be a major economy again, and never, ever be a threat again. He'd had enough. And, of course, that didn't happen. Um, the Morgenthau plan was dropped, um, and by 1950... German factories were producing steel to go on tanks in the Korean War for the United States. <laughs> well, then that raises the question, I guess, that... So you've established here that sort of these these nefarious intelligence folks who really have probably more allegiance to, the, to, the, to, to money and, and corporate interests than their own countries who kind of worked out this surreptitious deal. So why do you think that... You know, the British and the U.S. government just accepted that Hitler was dead. Was it sort of like where they, you know, it wasn't worth chasing him all the way to Argentina and, and expanding well, the wars at the time just to end it kind of thing? Where it's like simpler, out of much simpler to think he was dead, I think, for everybody. I mean, Britain was was completely destroyed by World War II. Um, and, you know, under American instructions for the good of democracy, we gave away our empire at the end of World War II as well. Um there was still rationing here until the late 1940s, you have to remember. Um, people wanted it to be over. 
We'd been in it a long time, been in it, you know, two years longer than you guys were, and we'd been in it a long time, and I think we just wanted to draw, as a government, as a people, wanted to draw a line on the whole damn thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was also the second time we'd fought Germany in, uh, in less than 40 years. So they wanted it to be over, and that was the simplest way. Um, and I think that that's what Trevor Opel was meant to do, meant to draw a line under this now. We need to move on. Um, and that's, that's what he effectively did. And it was sort of, you know, the idea that these guys, they've, they've been shunted to exile. It's, it's, you know, they're kind of powerless now. They don't have vast armies at their disposal. It's, it's, you know. Well, I don't think anybody knew. <laughs> you know, very <laughs> few people knew. Um, and you know, the fact that they were in exile, you know, in a place that had been prepared for them since the 1930s, I mean, Argentina, although it's a wonderful country today, in the 1930s, it was the only place outside of Nazi Germany that had its own Nazi party with a swastika and surrounded by a, a cogged wheel. Um, I've got amazing footage from the Department of Defense, um, your Department of Defense, from 19, uh, 1938, when the Anschluss happened, when Austria and Germany were merged into the new Greater Reich. And there are 30,000 Nazis in Buenos Aires at Luna Park celebrating this. It looks like a Nuremberg rally. We know from captured documents that were found after the war that Juan Perón and Eva Perón had both been in the pay of German military intelligence since 1941. The Nazis funded the coup in 1943 that brought the colonels and then Perón to power. I mean, they'd set it up brilliantly. So although they went into exile and they didn't have all their troops left, or their weapons left. They had a base they could work from, and Bormann realized very soon, I think, definitely by 1952, that the way ahead was to become an economic power, right? not to have people marching behind flags. That was never going to sell again. You know, it was simply never going to sell. Yeah. All right. So that, And then it's. I guess it goes, you know, from the government down just to the people. They just, you know... As long as Hitler, as long as they're told Hitler's dead, they're you know they can get over it. They don't really you know they're tired of this war and everything else. I think so. I mean, I, I, it, it's quite interesting. There, there are pretty substantial FBI files on the hunt for Hitler, and I think that um, Director Hoover, for all his um, foibles and um, individuality uh, characteristics, I don't think Hoover believed it. In fact, I'm pretty sure Hoover didn't believe it. But you know, he was. The FBI was moved out of, out of foreign operations in the 50s. They had the Un-American Activities Committee to worry about, um, and all the communist spies and, and threats in America at that time, real or, or alleged. Um, and CIA took over operations overseas. Yeah. And, of course, we all know who ran the CIA at that time. Exactly. So it all comes back around to uh, how this all was made possible. So that's yeah. sort of like the official story here, and it's been accepted ever since, which is... Really kind of sad and, and, and just, uh, troubling that, you know, this, this turn of history, this incorrect turn of history very likely is still believed by 90% or more of, uh. Well, 19, I'd say 99%. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that's amazed me, Tim, as we, as we've gone through this is so much of this was reported at the time. By proper journalists, you know, by, by Reuters and Associated Press journalists, by United Press International journalists, by, um, by good writers, by extremely good writers writing for everybody from the New Yorker to um, the Chicago Sun-Herald. And yet all that seems to have been swept away by historians who 
I think generally are quite lazy people. I'm, I hate to say this. But once it's been accepted that something like Trevor Roper's book is, is monumental, is the source text to go by, you suddenly have them treating this as if it was the Bible or the Quran. It cannot be wrong. It should not even be questioned. And that's amazed me. Is yes, the number of attacks I've had on me, not, not physical, but the you know, number of attacks I've had and Simon has had for even daring to revise this history, to look at it, and to report what we found out, has been amazing. How dare we say that the German government would lie to us? I mean, for me, I'm sorry as a journalist, I know governments lie all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Iraq is my favorite lately, weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> what weapons of mass destruction? Exactly. You know, they weren't there. And, you know, it's, that's not the only time in, in our country we have, you know, uh, a thing called Bloody Sunday when 13 um, people were shot dead in Northern Ireland back in 1969. All were said to be IRA gunmen, um, and they were shot dead by paratroopers on the streets uh, trying to, you know, quell civil unrest at the time for terrible religious reasons. Well, 40-something years on, the report on Bloody Sundays come out. There was no trace of any of those people carrying weapons. None. In fact, none of them did carry weapons that day, and none of them were members of the IRA. They were all civilians shot dead by our paratroopers. It's taken 45 years for that to come out, and that's one incident in Belfast, in the, sorry, Londonderry, I think, um, in one town in Britain, and they managed to cover it up for years and years. Yeah. Okay, so like I said, that, that that's the that's the main mainstream version of what happened with Hitler. But as explained in Grey Wolf, there is very very likely a true, a more true story, or very likely a different story of what happened to Hitler, and that's Operation Fuhrland, which is to get him out of Germany and get him to Argentina, which is yeah. a, a tremendous, as you said, a, a, as you explain here, a, a tremendously uh, pro-Nazi country. They're very uh, at, that, at the time, and and very German. I mean, they had a huge German community there, um, and it had been bought, yeah, it had been bought and paid for by Martin Bormann and uh, um, his representative there, Ludwig Freuder. Um, they had a bolt hole to which, after the war, more than thirty thousand people went to. I mean, Peron issued ten thousand passports. My goodness, um, all real Argentine passports issued and issued to Nazis and people fleeing Europe. Um, we're not talking a couple of hundred escaping. We're talking 30,000 escaping. And these aren't just Germans. They're, you know, Croat Nazis and Belgian Nazis and Swedish Nazis and French Nazis. Uh, but they're mainly German Nazis. And some of them, you know, some of them incredibly senior SS generals and Waffen SS generals and concentration camp doctors. Are, are sort of, they're the, the, the evil ones that people can get a handle on, you know, like Mengele, this, this mad psychopathic experimenting murderer. Yeah. But it's the people who were mid-level, you know, colonels and lieutenant generals and you know, people like that, important figures, um, important figures in all the Reich ministries um, who made it out to Argentina. Um, not all of them stayed there. A huge number of them went back to Germany. They'd taken off their uniform, they put on a suit, and they went back to doing what they did before the war. Unbelievable. Well, I guess detail. I wish it was, Tim. I wish it was unbelievable. I wish we didn't have the facts available to us. Absolutely, yeah. Available to us. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean that in a pejorative way. No, 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 I, I appreciate <laughs> that. But, I mean, Tim, this was my first reaction when we came across all this. Yeah. It's but it was unbelievable. Crazy, yeah. Um, 
Well, we'll detail Hitler's journey from Berlin to Argentina because it's not as simple right. as he got on a plane and flew right to Argentina. I mean, there's a no, no, there's a tremendously nope. harrowing trip inside of a submarine that I don't think I could do. So, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, about that. I'm with you that the way we're pretty sure it happened is that on the evening of the 29th of April 1945, Hitler and a small group left the bunker, made it to the chancery, to his personal course in the chancery, where they used the escape tunnel down to the underground system, the U-Bahn system in Berlin. They then walked for about four or five miles, I suppose, five, six kilometers, to another underground station at Fair Berliner Platz, where they came to the surface. Waiting for them at the surface, and this is at night, um, it was a JU-52, um, they called the Iron Annie, the classic transport plane of the, uh, of the Nazis, three engines, you see them in most sort of Nazi war films, very much like the DC-3, the Dakota. <coughs> it was that ubiquitous. Um, that plane, captained by Captain Peter Baumgart, flew them from Berlin um, to the former Zeppelin base in Denmark, the former Imperial German Zeppelin base in Denmark at Tonda, um, where they were seen by other witnesses. Bangalore left them there, and another aircraft picked them up. We believe from um, one of Hitler's pilots who wrote after the war a very cryptic diary note um, that people would not believe if they, if they heard what he really had to say, that they were then flown to Travemunda on the coast, where they picked up a longer-range aircraft. The JU-52 wouldn't do much more than sort of six, 700 miles. Um, but they managed to pick up a Ju-252. We know this aircraft was available to them at Travemunder at the end of the war. The Ju-252 flew them to Spain, across Allied-occupied Europe. But and everybody goes, well, you know, there were air defences and everything else, and that they couldn't have got out. Well, quite a few people actually did get out in the final days of the war before um, VE Day on May the eighth including Leon de Grel, who flew a much less-range bomber, was flown in a much less-range bomber, a Heinkel HE-111, to San Sebastian in Spain. Um, and we have numerous other reports of aircraft making it out of Nazi Germany um, into Spain at the time. They landed 80 miles, 80 miles southwest of Barcelona at an airfield called Royce, which was controlled by the Spanish government. We have to remember that Spain at this stage was under Generalissimo Franco, Franco was a fascist. Hitler and the Nazis had supported him during the Spanish Civil War and had effectively put him in power. Um, the Spaniards sent a division called the Blue Division to fight with um, the Nazis at Stalingrad, and there were numerous members of um, the Waffen-SS who were Spanish as well. This was a time when people believed in ideologies like fascism and communism, and, and people believed in democracy as well. Um, at Reusing in the south of Barcelona, that aircraft that had taken them there was taken apart, dismantled, and destroyed. Um, so there could be no evidence that they'd been there. And all this was reported in the Daily Express in 1945 at the time, under an article called, Is Franco Hiding Hitler? <laughs> um, so, you know, not new, not new material, but we have it from other interesting sources as well. We then believe that a Ju-52, um, again, the decoder of its time in fascist Europe, in Spanish colors of the Spanish Air Force, picked them up and flew them down to the Canary Island of Fuerteventura. Um, the island of Fuerteventura, interesting place. 
uh, basically run by a man called Gustav Winter, who was the senior Abwehr military intelligence, German military intelligence operative um, in the Canaries at that time. Um, built an amazing well, mansion and, and roads and everything else using political prisoners. Uh, in fact, the road to his house is still called the Way of the Prisoners. And built an airfield at the bottom of the island. And you can actually go on Google Earth and uh, look at the bottom of Fuerteventura and you will see the airfield, which is still there, still exists. Built in 1943 um, as part of the whole potential escape scenario. At the same time, there were three U-boats as part of a pack, that, the final pack, um, Wolf Pack, that was uh, going after shipping on the American coast. Now, it's, this is an interesting Wolf Pack. One, it's called Sea Wolf. Um, and almost everything to do with Adolf Hitler. I mean, the reason the book is called Grey Wolf. How is the word wolf floating around it somewhere? Um, these three boats peeled off from that pack and got to Fuerteventura and very basically picked Adolf Hitler, Hermann Fagelein, Ava Brown up on one of the ships, two of the ships, and then made a 53-day crossing by snorkel uh, at this stage of the war. The Germans were very adept in the use of the snorkel, which enabled them to remain submerged but run the engines at the time. And 53 days later, they landed on the coast of Argentina, um, very near a German um, settlement called Villa Gessel, or Villa Gessel, um, at a place called Nicotia. Now, history tells us that two of the submarines involved in this escape were sunk by U.S. naval forces at the time. Um, in the Atlantic, just south of the Azores. But nothing came to the surface. No, um, no debris came to the surface, and nothing. And so these ships are just missing. They're definitely not sunk. All the other ships, the submarines that were sunk by the U.S. Navy, all had debris fields come to the surface and everything else. And in fact, even the, even the Royal Navy, the British Admiralty, described them as um, the reports of the sinking of these U-boats as some of the dodgiest reports of sinkings in the whole of World War II. Huh. But it was the end of the war, and everybody wanted a medal. So, um, yeah, they got away with things that you'd never get away with um, normally in combat. So, I think a massively unpleasant experience to travel across the Atlantic in a U-boat. But the great thing was, was the whole point of Operation Seawolf was to draw the American forces up from the South Atlantic to protect the eastern seaboard. Yeah. The propaganda message went out that these submarines were carrying V-1 rockets with nerve gas probably on board them. And this was all reported in the U.S. press as being true, that U-boats were coming to the eastern coast and they were going to drop um, rockets full of robots, they called them, uh, robot rockets full of poison gas on New York. And in response to this supposed threat, which actually wasn't true, uh, you couldn't get a V-1 on a, on a U-boat until much later. The Americans managed to do it. Um, so they pulled up the whole of the fleet to protect the eastern seaboard, giving the submarines free reign in the South Atlantic straight across. There was nothing there even looking for them. Um, again, it's this great thing, you know, they're sunk. Well, two of them are sunk. The other one actually did surrender off the coast of Argentina later on. Um, U-530 and U-977, two submarines that really made it, really were reported um, by the press to have made it to Argentina post-war. What they don't mention is the other two. Right. Um, and it's the other two that we have 
police and Coast Guard reports from Argentina at the time, um, which showed that these submarines arrived off the coast, that passengers disembarked um, and were met by Nazi sympathizers. Um, a very short while later, we have reports of Hitler at a ranch called San Ramon, um, which is owned by the Chambouglip family, um, which are German ambassador of Chile, the Nazi ambassador of Chile owned the property. Um, and we have eyewitness reports from that property in 1945 of him and Ava being there. Who are you calling? The press. This is big news. Sound barrier's finally been broken. No, sir. No press. What? No word of this is to go beyond the flight line. What's going on here? This is big news. We need coverage of this. No, sir. Sorry. No press. Those are orders. National security. But the war's over. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Well, look, pal, maybe they don't want someone to know. Who? The Russians, maybe. The Russians? They're our allies. Well, anyway, someone figured it out that way, and that's the way it is. I couldn't imagine the 50-plus days inside the submarine, you know, and it's, it's kind of... As we'll get into here, as we discuss Hitler's life in Argentina, in, in a way it's kind of like you wonder if, if he suffered a fate almost worse than death as he, as he became. Well, you have to remember that these guys, um, Brown and Hitler, had been in what was described as a concrete U-boat. That's true. Um, for, for a couple of months anyway, um, in the bunker in Berlin. It wasn't very big. It, was, it got to be very smelly and very uncomfortable um, towards the end, although it was described earlier on as being pretty luxurious because... All the paintings and the carpets had been brought down from the Chancery building um, to make it more comfortable for them. But even so, I mean, speak to any submariner, you've got to be a particular kind of person to put up with 53 days underwater um, in a very smelly diesel submarine. Um, so I don't, it wasn't an easy escape route. Um, and then, yeah, let's hope the guys suffered anyway. And you wonder, sort of like, it's quite a change of lifestyle to be, you know, in his mind, I'm sure, you know, on top of the world for a while there, and then really reduced to, you know, a fleeing criminal in the ultimate sense of, uh, you know, in, in tremendous hiding in, in this submarine for 50-plus days. I mean, you know, wonder what went through his twisted mind. You know, I'm, 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 what, what's interesting is, I have to say to you, I have no idea. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. I wouldn't make it up. No, but I mean, this is part of my problem with historians and other people who write about, you know, um, anybody from Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein and, you know, on to Adolf Hitler, is they will put them in that their position. You know, they will try and think through their eyes and think through their minds. And as a reporter... That's not something I've ever done or can do. You know, I'm there to report what I find out. Right. Because I know that no matter how, you know, accurate, unbiased, and honest I try and be, I'm still, you know, a product of my, my background, product of my parents, product of my society, product of everything else. So my view of truth may not always be the same view of truth that somebody from another part of the world would have. Um, so I try not to put myself into the minds of these people. Um, but <laughs> I've been in a submarine, but never, you know, just visited one, and I wouldn't have wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, really wouldn't have wanted to do it. Well, that's what um, that's that's what I like about the book too. You know, it it leaves that it leaves that up to the reader in a sense to put their mind in in that position to see, you know, to to speculate on what that must have been, that experience must have been like uh, in general. Because you know, it, it's extremely difficult to know what the what the truth of Hitler's medical condition at that time was. Um, you know, people will say that he had Parkinson's. 
Well, I can find no evidence to suggest that he had Parkinson's at all. Um, apart from there are pictures of his double on April the 20th with a very trembling hand behind his back um, and a little bit of video from Becher's garden with him tapping his hand behind his back. But we know the man on April the 20th isn't Hitler, so the man with the trembling hand isn't Hitler in those pictures. Right. Whether it's him in Becher's garden, I don't know. We know he had terrible, terrible stomach problems with being treated with those, <coughs> which couldn't have been nice on a submarine. Oh, um, geez, no. No. <laughs> and um, you know, we also are told by various people in the bunker that Ava Brown was in the very early stages of pregnancy again. Um, so, you know, first trimester, probably not going to be too bad, um, but still not going to be comfortable being the only woman on a, you know, a ship of 55 smelling men. Yeah. Um, and you get the dog down there, too. Uh, yeah, and the dog down there, too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this, people go, well, uh, you know, he wouldn't have uh, no dog on submarines. Well, there were lots of dogs on submarines and Royal Navy people. One had a goat on a British submarine. So, <laughs> uh, you know, plus parrots and everything else you could ever hope for. Monkeys that would take back to Britain. Um, so it wasn't unheard of for a dog to be on a, on a U-boat. And, um, you know, it may, may have got used to using a tray. I'm sure my Labrador would have. If you thought he was still around me and having fun. So we've got, we've established here, Hitler, he's in Argentina now, he's got Ava Braun with him. Uh, and, and what most people probably you may be thinking is that he's in like total hiding. But what you seem to suggest in the book is that it was such a sympathetic region where he was that, you know, he was fairly free to move around. And at one point he even was taken to a, not the main hospital, but a a clinic of some kind to treat uh, wounds from the assassination attempt that people know yeah, the, Operation Yeah, the July 44 bomb plot, I think he still had problems with after the war. Um, it, it's not so much... You have to remember that Patagonia is much bigger than Texas. Yeah. And it's huge. And the communities down there, the San Carlos de Bariloche, if you go there now, you will see all the houses look Bavarian, um, people, you know, drink German beer or German-style beer. Um, it, you know, there's still a lot of German spoken down there. Um, it's it, it, it's a perfect place to escape to, a perfect place to escape to. Um, and you wouldn't have been noticed as long as you didn't make a big... Well, you'd have been noticed by the right people, but those right people were on your side anyway. Yeah. It would have almost been like if Britain's royal family had had to flee to Canada or Australia or New Zealand. You know, it would, it would be that partial. It would be, they'd be on the British royal family side. They wouldn't be handing people over to the Nazis. Um, any more than the people in Argentina would be handing them over to Americans or Brits who simply aren't looking for them anyway because they're dead. And this is the amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. He traveled, uh, he traveled within Argentina and he went up to this place called Hotel Vienna on the um, inland sea at Machu Picchu in Cordoba. But this wasn't an open clinic or an open hotel. It had 30 security, all of them German. It was run by a German officer, and it was built in one of the most obscure places. You could ever think that a major hotel come health spa hospital would be built. I mean, it's an amazing place. I've been there. It's a wreck now. But um, in 1945, this would have been the ultimate in holiday destinations in a place that nobody ever went to. Which raises the question of why. Well, it was built by Nazi money. We know that. We've got the um, 
we know who built it, who arranged for it to be built, and I think it was meant to be a place where, and this is, I'm, I'm, I don't have facts for this bit, but I think it was probably built to act as some sort of plastic surgery operation. Oh, interesting. So people would go in and have changes to their faces, or people would go in if they had been wounded during the war and things would, would be done to help them out. Um, I also think it was probably planned as a meeting place. Um, that part of Cordoba was very, very German at the time, um, and surprisingly enough still is. So, um, And there were key places like this all over Argentina. And even in Buenos Aires, there were so many supporters there and people that had been paid extremely well that you could limit the number of people who would get to see you or know you were there. It's just amazing to find out about all this. That's the that's the key part. You know, like I said, I'd only really heard about this sort of theory tangentially and that is as you get into this section of the book, it's just amazing how elaborate this whole thing was. That's really uh that's I think it did, it started off being very elaborate. Um, then when the money came in, it was able to become even more secure and elaborate. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they bought loads of properties, and these properties were out. Yeah, I've, I've never been to Texas, but you know, from the films I've seen, you could have a ranch that you could drive all day and not reach the end of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had lived in Australia, so I know you know what big countries are like as opposed to little ones like Britain. Um, and if, if strange people came into the area, they'd be known very quickly and could be neutralized. Exactly. You, had to be, you had to be one of them. You had to know what you were doing, know who you were seeing. Um, and, of course, any people who came in post-1945 blended into a German community very easily. Now, I know it's sort of like, I know it's speculative, but and you kind of alluded to the idea that Bormann came to the conclusion that you know this whole like it, it, that it's better to be an an economic power than a than a military power but what was what do you think the plan was i guess you could say for hitler when he got to argentina to regroup and and re- raise a new army or or just to fade into obscurity and escape justice what do you think the the plan I don't, was i don't i don't really know this is still something that we're trying to work out because at various times, very senior Nazis who wanted to rebuild Germany as um, a national socialist country, or West Germany as it became, came out to Argentina and obviously visited with the senior Nazis on the ground, and I believe with Hitler and Bormann at that time. These were people like Hansel Rudel, who was the most decorated fighter pilot of um, World War II. He shot down more Russian planes and destroyed more Russian tanks and any other any other aviator in World War II, he actually went on to help the Americans develop the Apache helicopter, but shouldn't really go there. He came out, and his whole idea was he was going to go back to Germany with aspects of the Bormann treasure and restart the Nazi Party. You have to remember, the Nazi Party had millions of members, and at the end of World War II, there were still millions of members of the Nazi Party. Um, they just went home and took off their uniforms. Yeah, they didn't stop being Nazis. So I, I think that there was there were two there were two views, and one Hitler may have well been involved in the one view which said yes, national socialism must survive in its you know eugenic genetic Aryan form, and um, people like Hans Ulrich Rudel would have been heavily into that idea. And I think Martin Bormann and numerous other Nazis who realized that 
they could never go back, but they could make a decent life for themselves in Argentina because they had lots of cash, thought, mm, no, this isn't going to work out. So there does appear to have been some sort of um, break in about 1952 um, when the Nazi Nazis, as well as the economic Nazis, um, started to fail very badly in German politics. Uh, a number of them were arrested and put away for a little while. Um, they didn't seem to have as much access to money as they'd had before 1952. And I think at that time, Bormann, who always controlled access to the Fuhrer, to Adolf Hitler, probably thought, right, we can't have this guy as a rallying point anymore for this, or he's going to screw it up for everybody. And so I think he almost got moved into an exile in exile. That's what our witnesses seem to be describing, is that Hitler moves into this exile within exile. The only people who know where he is are Bormann and a couple of, you know, confidants of Bormann. Yeah. Um, I, from information that we've received, it seems that Ava Brown left him at that stage, 52, 53, um, and took the two girls to live in another town in Argentina where they were brought up. Right, right. Yeah, I have that in my notes, that she, she eventually is just, just bails on this whole thing. Which is surprising. I so. I mean, that they yeah. let her get away, I guess you could say, in a sense. No, I, I don't think they let her get away. I think she probably, she may well have had a word with Bowman and said, look, you know, you can, you can do this to him, but they're not looking for me. And they're definitely not looking for the two girls. Right. So, you know, why not just let us go and live our, our life some way and then, you know, have some sort of a life? Um, she was much younger than Hitler. I mean, you know, he was, what, 56 in 1945, and she was still in her 20s. Um, and maybe she just got, you know, I'm speculating, maybe she just got bored. Maybe she'd had enough of living in the back of beyond. I mean, this, she was a bit of a party girl, Ava Brown, um, who loved tango as well. I mean, she loved tango all the way through. So um, I think that she, that, you know, speculation, I think she'd had enough. The, the split was happening, the schism was happening between the Nazis who believed the swastika and eugenics and the Aryan nation could continue, and the others who thought, hang on, this thing ever going to work, but we have so much money, we can now influence the development of Germany once more in Europe. Right, right. Exactly, yeah, that seems to be the case uh, from reading the book. It, as you said, you know, these these guys, they they, had, they got developed into their own lives and jobs and things in Argentina and, and, and beyond, and, and, you know, Kind of, and, and the cause kind of fizzled out for them too. So, like, sort of that that whole thing, because you know Hitler wasn't yeah. really rallying all these people. He was sort of, uh, at best, maybe, you know, a, a figurehead in hiding amongst who was left, and that's yeah. really all he had left. That's all he had left, and um, you know, it would have been, I think, Bormann and whoever he did the deal with, Dulles and his cohorts in America. Part of that deal was, this guy never sees the light of day again. Yeah. Yep, you want to survive. We want all the industries to keep on working. We want our finances to continue working. We want to make a profit. And he he blew his chance. He muffed it completely. So you make sure that he's kept very quiet. And yet reports did come out of his presence in Argentina. Um, you know, there are newspaper reports all the way through this period. Uh, little little bits here and there which saying, you know, Hitler is in Argentina. Um, and, of course, we have interviewed, met, and found in other places eyewitness reports of him being there. Right. And well, a lot of these have come out since Argentina stopped being a fascist dictatorship as well. 
So people aren't as scared as they used to be. You have to remember, this was a, a military-controlled country for a very long time, um, apart from Peron's stints as um, president, as the leader. You know, when it was a classic fascist um, autocracy, in between time, it was run by generals. Right, right. This wasn't like a free country where people could do whatever they wanted. Not really. No, no. no. (laughs) And they managed to make 30,000 of their own disappear in the 1970s. It wouldn't have been difficult to make people disappear before that. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, too, in the book you... uh you you say that uh, there are some FBI files on Hitler in Argentina, including like a detailed report from someone who saw him at a ballet, I think, uh, in Argentina. But a lot of the files on Hitler in Argentina are still top secret after, you know, 50-plus years, which should tell people yes. something. Um, well, I mean, we can't get hold of them. And there are files here which have been stamped for another 50 years as top secret, um, you know, which are, which are central to the nation's interests still which I don't understand 65 years on. Um, I really don't understand it. But there is a mountain of paperwork, both in the U.S. and in Britain, um, that has been continually stamped top secret and not available to anybody. And this is despite Freedom of Information Acts there and here. Um, Still, a number of them are not released. And the ones that are released are heavily redacted, to use a a word that has been... uh, come into common parlance, especially over in this country, um, since all the WikiLeaks um, material happened. But, you know, redacted just means that somebody's put a pen through it, a big marker pen. So they've taken out names, dates, locations, contacts. Um, even on the material that's been released, it's still heavily redacted. I mean, you can see some of them reproduced as um, facsimiles in our book. Um, and, yes, for instance, the man who saw them at this small ballet performance in a town called Casino in Brazil on the Argentine border with Brazil. Um, his name, he was supposed to be a French um, security man, um, French resistance during World War II in Paris. Um, you know, his name isn't there, so we can't, we can't double-check that source, uh, which is incredibly irritating. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And like I, like, like, like we both were kind of just saying, it's like, it's mind-boggling that these, this information is still considered secret after all these years. You wonder why, in the sense that maybe these kind, maybe the U.S. and, and Britain, you know, they don't want to admit that they, you know, quote-unquote got it wrong about Hitler. So. There's a researcher, a very brave researcher in Germany at the moment, um, who had been working on the Eichmann story. And she has continually put in freedom of information requests to the German government for release of the files in Eichmann. And they refused, they refused, they refused, they refused. And she eventually got them uh, through court. And you can imagine how expensive that process is. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're trying to do it as a, as a freelance journalist, or, you know, without the support of a government or a major corporation or a major newspaper, but she eventually got them to release them. And it shows that the Germans the BND as it was then, the German Security Service, and the CIA, all knew that, my, um, that Adolf Eichmann was in Argentina in 1952. Knew his name, his address, um, who he worked for, uh, what his children ate for breakfast, and what his wife did. <laughs> and this is the man who was, you know, the architect of the Holocaust. Um, the man who the Israelis eventually went and picked up after they'd been told about him repeatedly. Um, but they eventually went and got him and, you know, executed him in Tel Aviv in, what, 1962? Um, yeah, I think 1962, um, after putting him on trial. 
that there is so much information hidden. You know, why would the CIA and, well, I, I can imagine why the West Germans wanted to hide it, because he knew all the names of the people in the West German government and security services who'd been SS. Yeah. Who'd been members of the Nazi party. But why would the CIA hide Eichmann? It boggles the mind. It really does. Maybe for the same sort of reasons, I guess. Not to to keep all this under wraps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. You know, I mean, by that stage, you know, America was heavily involved in German industry again. And, um, <sighs> profit. Yeah. Now, just to bring the story, I guess, full circle on Borman, he ends up in Argentina as well after a couple of years, I think, right? Hiding out in, in Europe still? Yeah, we're pretty sure from um, the reports of a British intelligence officer who was videotaped in the 1990s that Bormann came out of um, Italy around 1947, December 1947. We also have information from two people who've been vilified um, in publishing, which not by everybody. Ladislav Farago, who I think is an amazing journalist and author, and Paul Manning, who was a great CBS correspondent, who both wrote books, extensive books on Martin Bormann um, and his existence in Argentina after the war. Um, Aftermath, Martin Bormann and the Fourth Reich by Ladislav Farago is incredibly detailed, has wonderful documentation, and it's a very serious work. Paul Manning's book, Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile, it's a very good book. Sadly, Manning doesn't give any of his sources and writes it in a, in a pure journalistic style, which um, has not made it acceptable as a historical document, which is unfair to Paul Manning's, um, Paul Manning's memory. The guy is a, a great reporter. Um, <clears throat> and interestingly enough, a lot of the Manning stuff and the, and the Farago stuff coincide as well. Um, and they also coincide with detailed information that we have from Argentina that we've got from our own researchers. So, Borman gets to Argentina in about 1948, um, and he's a bit annoyed, really, with um, with the Perons, who yeah. have spent a fortune, right, spent right, a lot of his money. I love that part of the book too, because uh, he gets essentially double-crossed by the Perons, who take three quarters of his fortune, of this massive fortune. And leave him with still a, a quite a sizable amount of money and everything, but but, but. yeah, no, it's, it's still pretty sizable. And there are all the investments in the neutral countries and things that they can't get their hands on. But in in terms of portable money, let's put it that way, um, yeah, they took about three quarters of it. And this is something that was reported at the time by the Catholic Intelligence Agency, and the documentation has been reproduced not just in Farago but also by um, by the French newspapers, Le Figaro at the time produced it, um, and I'm pretty convinced that their information is serious. But yes, I mean, you know, you, no one amongst thieves, I think, Tim, is the, um, is, is the phrase. Exactly, yeah. And Ava Perón especially just threw it at the masses, um, her desk camisados, the shirtless ones, um, in an attempt to, you know, keep Perón in power, and to make them a populist movement. Um, but instead of building for the future, and it's something that Argentina still suffers from today, you know, this was sort of, I don't know, stump politics, I suppose you might call it. Here's 20 bucks, come vote for me. Yeah. And, you know, 20 bucks handed out a lot of times. But Borman, you know, Borman was a realist, and Ava Perón was dying of cancer, um, and he always described her as the more intelligent of the two. He didn't think very much of Juan Perón, although he did describe him as his great benefactor. 
but he thought Ava Peron was a much more intelligent woman. Um, you know, Bowman, we're pretty sure, took it out on the people he'd had as his trustees there. There are four key murders that take place in Buenos Aires in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, one, Ludwig Freuder dies from drinking poison coffee. <laughs> Two others have shot in the street. Um, Ava Peron's brother, Juan Duarte, um, commits suicide, uh, but he commits suicide in a very strange way, holding the gun in a place to his head that only somebody else could have done. <laughs> um, but most of these are covered up and hidden. Um, but Bowman definitely did some tidying up when he got to Argentina. And you, you, have, you have to remember, we're dealing with Nazis here. Right? These people think nothing of murdering six million people industrially. Right. So you go after a snitch or you go after a um, somebody who's, who's done you wrong, um, you're not going to just slap them on the wrist. I mean, it, it, this is like the mafia. Yeah, they're, they're, this is organized crime. Yeah, it was calculating in, in, a, in a just despicable way, you know, even the, even the whole aspect of the lookalikes, you know, it's not enough just to, just to have the lookalikes, they have to kill the lookalikes to, <laughs> to make it, to make it real, just in case anybody finds those bodies. Right, exactly. It's like, they, they really, uh, to them, these are, these are pieces on a chessboard, it's, it's scary. Completely. I mean, I, I think um, Henry Kissinger, um, who's an interesting man, got it right. Did he once say that the illegal we can do at once, the constant, unconstitutional takes a bit longer? That sounds like something he would say, yeah. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Mr. Kissinger. Um, but, you know, again, and he, again, Henry Kissinger describes power as the ultimate aphrodisiac. We'll talk a little bit about one of the more tantalizing aspects of the book, and you, you touched on it earlier here, and this is the illegitimate, or, or the children of Hitler. Right? By my count yeah. from the book, we have two by Eva Braun. We've got one by uh, Goebbels' wife, who died in, in the bunker uh, when, the, when the Goebbels' family all, all uh, you know, I guess killed themselves, and they killed well, the children. Murdered the children. Right, murdered the children. And one potentially by a uh, German Olympian, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the um, one of the, the classic um, things that is always said about Hitler was that he um, wasn't capable of fathering any children. And there was a, a, an incredible propaganda song that became very popular amongst British troops, and I'm sure most people of the generation in America would know it as well. Which is, Hitler has only got one <clears throat> uh, testicle. Um, the other is in the Albert Hall. I mean, it just just it goes on. Um, Goebbels had something similar, and Himmler had something similar, and poor old Goebbels had no balls at all. But the information that came out after the war, and again, this is information that has been completely ignored, is that Ava Brown's father said that Hitler had an heir. Um, Uschi, the child who is seen in all the pictures of the Becker's Garden with Ava, with Hitler, all the time, is variously described as Uschi Schneider, the daughter of Hertha Schneider, Ava Brown's um, best friend, or of Hermann Fagelein. Well, Fagelein didn't have any children at that time. He had a child later, which he never saw. And Hertha Schneider didn't have a child of that age either. Uschi is almost definitely Adolf Hitler's daughter. Um, and we have information from Argentina later on in the war, that later on in their life, um, that she survived and made it out to join them. Abraham's mother also described after the war in an interview with a named um, Associated Press uh, journalist how Ava had given birth to a stillborn child in 1942, where it could only have been Adolf Hitler's. The 
Natalie Fleischer story, um, the Olympian story, we always thought was a bit a bit dubious. I mean, there was a, a book written in the 19, um, 1960s uh, saying Hitler was my father, Hitler my daughter, um, by this woman who then married a rabbi and went to live in Israel and seems to have disappeared. So it looked like a piece of tabloid rubbish to us. But we found out in um, interviews that Captain Manuel Monasterio had carried out with Hitler's Batman in Argentina that Hitler had told his Batman this story. Yeah. And so maybe it's not the tabloid fodder that, um, that it appeared to be to start with. The Magda Goebbels story was around. It was gossiped for a long time in Germany um, that uh, Magda Goebbels, is, uh, one of her children, was Hitler's. But this was something that um, it was a member, the wife of one of Hitler's inner circle, again gave a long interview to U.S. reporters at the end of the war, um, naming times, dates, places that Hitler and Magda Goebbels had um, an affair at, and the child arrived shortly afterwards. I think they're probably true. What I'm very convinced of is that Ushi was Adolf Hitler and Ava Brown's daughter. She made it out to Argentina post-war, and that Ava Brown was pregnant when she arrived in Argentina in 1945 and gave birth to a child in December 1945, early January 1945, um, and that was a daughter too. So what we're do you still track, we're still tracking this down? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I think in the book you suggest that Ava Braun died in the year 2000, roughly, and so I mean it would stand to reason that these the the you know offspring of Hitler and Ava Braun are, are either still running around somewhere or maybe they're yes. the next generation. You know, they're no, well, I mean, they'd be in their seventies now, right? Um, and I, it's difficult to but there's still like this. You don't just stop going on. Right. Yeah, it, it, the Grey Wolf isn't a completely finished story. Um, you know, the second book that we're working on at the moment, we have even further eyewitness reports and more material that backs up information that we have about the escapes of West Ventura and onto Argentina. Um, people have come out of the woodwork since the book has been published and since we've had um, press reports on it. I, to start with, was unconvinced that um, Ava Brown had lived until the 2000s. But we, we, we spoke to a number of people in Argentina, um, including at least one doctor working at the German hospital in Buenos Aires. There's a major German hospital in Buenos Aires, who told us that two of his older ladies who came to visit him regularly um, for checkups would often say that they'd had tea with her recently. And this guy is quite a serious doctor. Um, so it's difficult. I mean, that's why we didn't nail it down as much as I would have liked to in the book. Um, we put it in because I believe it's true. But we need to do more research and we need to follow this through. I mean, in some ways I feel a bit bad about chasing the kids because Argentina is full of the daughters and sons of SS monsters. Yeah. It just is. I mean, you know, wealthy families. Um, but it's not their fault what the parents did. Right, right. You know, I'm not really sure you can visit the sins of the fathers on um, on the children. Um, right. And, it, would not, not, not really, it wouldn't be really my to job. Con- it wouldn't be really to condemn them, but, you know, for further, I guess, 
it would be interesting to find them to see if there was any further insights into the story. You know what I mean? Yes, but I think I think you would condemn them. I think that you know they would be found and they'd be. Um, there are people out there who would go after them. I'm sure of it. Oh, I'm, not, yeah. I'm looking to protect anybody. I'm not. But um, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's my job to. Uh, if I can prove beyond reasonable doubt, as I think Grey Wolf goes a long way to doing, that Adolf Hitler and Martin Bormann escaped to Argentina at the end of World War II with the collusion of individuals and groupings within America, and that isn't Americans or the American government. I'm distinctly not anti-American. Um, if I can prove that beyond reasonable doubt and can get more information from people out there who know what really happened, that I think will be something of an achievement. Absolutely. Um, without you know, without having strayed into the bases in Antarctica, UFOs, the Bell technology, and um, lizard men running the planet for the Illuminati and skull and crossbones. Yeah, you're not David Icke, right? <laughs> well, the thing is that you know, so much of the information that comes out is overshadowed by what strikes me as idiocy, stuff you can't prove. Right. Um, so we should go after this in, a, in a, as forensic a way as we can um, to tell the story of what really happened. And it's not the story we were told. Definitely not the story I was told. Absolutely, yeah, that's for sure. And then sort of just to wrap up the the final, the, the real final years of Hitler, uh, you know, I, from what I could gather from the book, and this is from recollection, although I did read it this morning, so I should <laughs> I should have a pretty good <laughs> recollection. Um, the the, the Perón... Empire, the you know the, their their reign of power ended, and that that's when, as you say in the book, uh, Hitler was in exile within exile, and it was, they had yes. to really hide him. And as you said, only Bormann and these two guys, Lehman, his his doctor, and and uh, I guess you could call him a confidant, uh, this Beth guy. Um, yeah, Heinrich Beth, um, yeah. who is also known as Juan Palowski and also known as um, Pablo Glocknik. Um, he was a Graf Spey crewman um, who stayed in Argentina when they were interned after the Battle of the River Plate. Um, and depending on, on who you want to believe, A. Heinrich Better was actually killed on the Tirpitz um, when that battleship was destroyed. It had escaped from Argentina from internment and had gone back to join um, the Kriegsmarine again. I'm not convinced that it's the same Heinrich Better. Whoever it was, it was definitely the man who spent much of the 17 years of Hitler's exile in Argentina as his Batman confident, um, orderly, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it. Right, right. And and, and the picture you, you you guys paint in the book is that it's really, you know, these final years of Hitler, he's you know alone uh, with these two guys for like yeah. six, seven years. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, his health is failing. Um, he's got a heart condition. Uh, that's what Dr. Lehman's notes tell us, is that he's also um, does have a shaking going on in his hands, um, some sort of tremor going on in his hands. But Lehman thinks that that's probably down to the scarlet fever he got at the end of World War I, which can come back and affect you in later life. Um, there's no suggestion of it necessarily being Parkinson's. Um, but yeah, old people do tremble, um, and old sick people definitely tremble. So, yeah, Hitler spends the last years of his life, I think the best way I've ever described it is tormented, demented, and betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as you note in the book, he's class, he's just, he's classified, uh, 
you know, not not in his words, but sort of seen likely by Borman as a quote unquote distracting problem. Yes, yes. To keep him, you know, and one I wish he, um, one I think Borman probably felt he wished would go away a lot quicker than it did. Exactly. Yeah, that that was the that was the sense that I got too. That it was sort of like he just wanted this guy just just completely out of the picture and just really I think he probably wanted him dead. You know, in the long run. Yeah, you know, the people said to me, "Okay, prove this. Where are the DNA samples of um, of Adolf Hitler? You know, where's the body and everything else?" Well, this was a secret. The fact that he, you know, um, survived the end of World War II was a secret to many people. Well, the majority of people, very few people knew. So when he dies, you want that to be a secret as well. Right. You, you want the body to disappear. And of course, as far as the world's concerned, he's dead in a bunker in 1945. There's no profit in it. There's no, um, if you're Martin Borman at that stage, I'm not trying to put myself inside his head, but from what we've researched and read, Borman wanted to get on with running this economic empire. He didn't want somewhere in Argentina that a bunch of neo-Nazis or people who still, you know, hoped that an Aryan nation would rise in the center of Europe to go and worship at. That would just cause trouble. Right, exactly. That's the thing, too. Yeah, the, 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 you know, the, the, the last thing he wants, the worst case scenario is for it to emerge that Hitler's around and, and, and you know, for him to, for, for the world's eyes to turn toward Argentina. You know, yes, he's completely. happy operating sort of in the shadows still. Oh, completely. I mean, it's um, the next book, the working title is The Spider's Web. And right at the center of this web is this shadowy puppet master. Um, and he likes it that way. <laughs> so, and then it all, I guess you could say it all sort of culminates with the, the actual death of Hitler February 13th, 1962. How do you get it so precisely to that? Even, I think, at 3 p.m., I think you had it down to. Yeah, how, no, how 3 p.m., yep. Yeah, Dr. Lehman verifies the absence of life in the body of the uh, former Führer. This is down to research done by Captain Manuel Monasterio, who's credited in the book. Manuel is now, um, I hope he's still alive. He was 85 the last time I met him. A former congressman in Argentina, um, he was a, a captain in the um, Merchant Marine for many years, but a senior captain in the Merchant Marine, who met with Heinrich Becker, who met with Plan Polowski, this guy, Pablo Brocknick, in the 1970s. And um, he was a, a mechanic in a village where the captain needed his, um, his car repaired down on the Patagonian coast. And they got talking. And um, as a couple of old sailors, they got talking about, you know, the war and how the captain missed it. And Rockling said, well, I didn't. I was on the Grush Bay. And then it all poured out. And he handed the captain Dr. Lehman's papers. So the captain tells me, and I have no reason to disbelieve the captain. He's a very honorable, truthful man who has been threatened with death a number of times for telling us what he's told us. Um, Dr. Lehman's papers describe... His time with Hitler, it's a, there's a diary, or there was a diary, and described the final days and his death at 3 p.m. on February 13th, 1962. Um, it's a huge amount of information that, that Manuel transcribed into his book, Hitler Murió on la Argentina, in 1987. He wrote it 10 years after, after Glocknick died. He promised me to wait. Um, and it's a strange book. I mean, it, it, it reads like it's written by three people. Pablo Grotnik, Dr. Lehman, 
and Captain Monasterio, who originally wrote this piece. He was told all about the submarine escape, um, and he wrote it up, showed it to a couple of his friends in the Argentine Navy, uh, senior officers in the Navy, and they said, I wouldn't print that if I were you, Manuel. <laughs> um, that's going to get you into serious trouble. I'd make the first bit up. Wow. Um, so he made a bit up about Hitler escaping from Norway on a, on a fishing vessel. And um, he always said to me, he said, you know, I was told to make it up, so I did. But the rest of it is true. Interesting. And I have no reason to disbelieve him. Um, unfortunately, he's lost the Lehman Papers, which would have been, you know, one of the most important discoveries of the time. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe they'll turn up someday. There's, there's hope, I maybe, guess. Right? Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Um, he thinks he lost them in a house move. Um, and... Uh, yeah, when he was throwing a load of things out, I didn't ah. think it was important. The book didn't go very far. Um, he self-published in Argentina. Uh, he sold a few copies at the airport. Um, somebody from America came down to interview him um, from some agency, but he couldn't remember. He thought it might have been the FBI, but I think not in the 1980s. But a fascinating man, and it, it, it's his... Um, material that I think is incredibly valuable and very important. It also fits in with a lot of other stories we've heard um, that weren't didn't start to make sense until you put them in place with Captain Monasterio's work and other people's work. And there's no sign of Hitler after 62 that I can find. Yeah. There's lots of signs of Martin Bullman. And just to, just to sort of put a pin in this, how ruthless these, these Nazis and, and Bormann were, you know, these two guys, Lehman and, and, and Bethe, who were tasked with sort of, uh, you know, being the handlers for the dying Hitler, he dies. They realize, you know, we got to get the hell out of here because <laughs> yeah, we're, we're and, next, and, and only one of them survives. Yeah, Bethe makes it. I'm pretty sure that Lehman was um, murdered or given the choice to commit suicide. Who knows? But um, he didn't survive very much, um, if any time, after Hitler's death. Um, whereas Beto, I think, was a bit more of a, a streetwise guy. Um, yeah, he, he comes across as much more sort of streetwise and able to survive on his own. Whereas I think Lehman was much more of a esoteric intellectual who probably wouldn't have um, been able to run in the same way. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing the you know the misplaced loyalty of some of these guys. You know, it's like they really gave up a whole chunk of their lives to. to to tend to this, you know, exiled despot, and then once he dies, they're they're expendable. It's like yeah, it's but, you know, I think I think we just have to look at Osama bin Laden. Um, it took eleven years for the American government to find him and kill him, um, and he couldn't have done that without help. Yeah, and probably a lot of Pakistani help. But you know, eleven years. Nowadays, satellite tracking, drones, you knew he was alive. And it still took 11 years to find him. That was a big manhunt, lots of money on offer to um, put him away and everything else. Hitler was dead. Right. And that's the clever bit. So that sort of wraps up the whole the whole story there. Hitler dies 1962. Bormann, we have no idea what became of him. Uh... Both Manny and Farrago have him alive in the late 1970s. Um, and... I have other information now that definitely as late as 1974, um, he was around. He was 74 in 1974. Um, so both Manning and Farrago have him there in the 70s, and I'm pretty sure now of my third source for having him there in the 70s as well. Um, 
and living in, living in Buenos Aires or just outside Buenos Aires and protected by one of the major industrialist families from Germany. Um, not that he needed protection. Uh, I think Bowman had that sorted out himself. Yeah. I guess, like, the big question, you know, in looking at this thing from afar now and, and from all these years later, do you think we'll ever be told the truth about all this? Do you think, you know, the, the, the real story will ever become known? Obviously, it's known. It's out there. It's in Grey Wolf. But, I mean, do you think that it'll ever be accepted by the mainstream or acknowledged as the truth by the government? So. Good question. Um, if we can persuade the Argentines to open up their files, it probably would. Um, but we've requested it, and um, we'll see what happens there. They don't like Britons at the moment very much um, because they're still obviously concerned about the, uh, the position of the Falklands Malvinas um, Islands and who belongs, who they belong to. So it is, it's not the easiest place in the world to work as a British journalist um, investigating a past that wouldn't look very good for Argentina. Um, and that's not my point here. I don't want to make Argentina look bad. I, I really don't know if people are going to accept it. I mean, the, you know, the book has been called Drizzle. The book has been called Rubbish. Um, not by anybody you know, well-known or serious, but even trying to get serious historians, serious, and I use that in inverted commas, um, to look at it and see what we found out, it's difficult. They don't like to go back and revise things. Yeah. And yet the information contained in Grey Wolf isn't made up. Exactly. It's it's and you know the, the you get the feeling, and I'm willing to bet that the people who call it rubbish and all this other stuff, they haven't even read the book. No, they haven't. So and we had one incredible review on Amazon, which said it started with, "I have not read this book, nor intend to do so." <laughs> Anything? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What do you? Uh, okay, so you think that. You know, I guess I'm trying to get at, too, sort of like what else needs to be done? What else can be done here? Uh, you know, we're, we're in a serious race with The Undertaker as far as eyewitnesses. Most, almost all the eyewitnesses are dead, uh, which is you know, one of those things when you're trying to do a story this late on. Um, there are children out there who would be in their 50s. Um, you know, I'm, the child of a, I'm the youngest child of a World War II veteran. Um, my dad's been gone a while now, but uh, there are children out there. There are people out there who know the story. Um, the ones at the center of this would never really want the story told because they're enjoying very comfortable, very successful lives um, as corporate bankers and, and landowners across the world. Um, so whether it comes out or not, whether we ever find that smoking gun, um, I don't know. I know that after 30 years... 30-something years as a journalist, I have never come across conspiracy theory that really stood up, ever. And when we came across this, it became pretty obvious when we did some serious level research that this wasn't a theory, that this was a conspiracy, that these people that we've quoted in the book, and they're all sourced in the back, um, and we're hoping to put all the information that we found up on our website, um, which project, but we hope that'll happen in the next month or two. Um, will start to happen in the next month or two. So people can see for themselves what our basic sources are, and then we'll take it on from there. And as far as, like you say, you know, you hope for a smoking gun, let's just sort of dispel any any urban legends or anything. As far as you know, and clearly it would have been in the book, there's no footage or pictures or anything like that of Hitler after in Argentina. Yes, I, I'm told that there are pictures of Hitler in Argentina post-war. Uh -huh. 
Um, one of our interviewees um, said that she had seen them. She knew there were pictures of him that friends of hers had in Cordoba, which is a province in Argentina, and that she would ask them if we could have them. Uh, we could get a look at them at least or take pictures of them. Um, she was later told to stop dealing with us that um, the Gestapo was still active, which I found amazing, and that it was extremely dangerous for her to continue talking to us in any way, and she's refused to since then. But there are other sources that we're looking at. Okay. Um, but, you know, when we get them, we'll have them checked so that we won't just come out with them and say, this is Adolf Hitler. We will make sure that all the facial recognition technology that's available in the 21st century is brought to bear on anything that we do find. Okay, so uh, just to, I guess, sort of backtrack a little bit, like, uh, what I was getting at is that anything people see right now that on the Internet that, that may claim to be the pictures and stuff isn't. As far like, as I'm concerned, I've seen everything that purports to be Adolf Hitler post-war, and it definitely isn't. Okay, but there may still be some stuff out there that we haven't, hasn't emerged yet. I'm sure that there is, and, you know, I will be back in Argentina later this year um, continuing to look. Well, now, you said uh, about this, this threat to the witnesses, and uh, I, I watched the trailer because uh, you guys are making uh, Grey Wolf into a documentary, and you said that you know, numerous witnesses who spoke with you guys have been threatened. Are you concerned about your safety you know, telling this story? We have had witnesses threatened. Um, neither Simon nor I have been threatened personally. Um, <clears throat> other people who have investigated this story in the past have been threatened. Um, other people who investigated the Martin Bowman story have been more than threatened, uh, but that was back in the 60s and 70s. I'm not a brave man. Um, I mean, I've seen bits of combat. I've been cruise missiles by the Americans in Baghdad, and I've been rocketed by the Iraqis in Baghdad. I've been threatened with machetes in Rwanda and um, uh, had death threats against me in Yugoslavia when I was reporting there as well. So... You don't really have to worry about the people who threaten you. It's the people who do things without threatening you that you have to worry about. Yeah. And um, you never see them coming. But um, at the moment, I think that you know we'll carry on with our research. Um, the second book will show a great deal more of what happened, the real story of the end of World War II. Um, and again, that will be meticulously researched and thoroughly sourced. And we will see what else comes out of the woodwork and whether or not any of our freedom of information requests, both in the U.S. and in this country, um, are actually honored. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, you hope that in, in the long run we get this story straight, that, that the true story comes out. Because from reading Grey Wolf, I mean, you know, you, you can never say with 100% definitiveness uh, that, that something is certain, but I'm a believer after re having read the book. I mean, it just it stands up to to reason, and it, it really does stand up to to what really probably happened. Because there's a myriad. We we didn't really even get into this, but there's just a myriad of stories at the end of the book from people in Argentina who ran into Hitler. Yes, I mean, they're quite amazing. And we we did a, an interview with a 78 year old Argentine in London in December, and um, recording him on tape to be proper. TV interview, and he saw Hitler twice in 1953 and 1956 at a hotel run by the Navy in Buenos Aires. And the fascinating thing was he saw Martin Bormann at these meetings as well. And there, he's my second person that I've met personally and interviewed who has met Martin Bormann post-war. 
And the first one, who was Juan, uh, Juan Peron's personal policeman, personal bodyguard, I said to him, so what did, what did Borman look like? And he said, a lot like you, Gerard, a lot like you. And when I interviewed um, this other guy in December, whose name I can't release at the moment, I said to him, so what did Borman look like? And he said, a lot like you, but a little bit slimmer. <laughs> so, unfortunately, it seems I resemble the um, I resemble the Reichleiter. But to have two witnesses, 8,000 miles apart, who'd never met each other, and um, probably never seen a picture of Martin Bormann, um, to say that he looked like me, I found quite compelling. Um, because they were talking about the same man, the same man that we've had described in so many other places. Right, right. And and in addition to that, I mean, there's a story in the book. There was a wounded, there was a wounded man. I don't know the exact details of it. He was visited by three important people, one of which was Hitler at this hospital. And the nurse recognized Hitler because she had seen him in France, like in the 40s. Yeah, in 1940. And, and, um, and the, the critical part, I think, of the story is that, you know, she knew it was Hitler. She asks the wounded guy after they leave. She's like, well, who are these people that visited you? And and the guy says, you know, the jig is up essentially for this guy. You know, he's like, yeah, it was yeah. Hitler. You know who it is, right? And if you tell anybody, you'll be in serious trouble. And the, the amazing thing in Argentina, Tim, is that a lot of people just think that this was possible, that this happened. And you will meet. I mean, we had about a hundred people working with us on the um, drama documentary we're making, and almost all of the Argentines had a Nazi story to tell. It's amazing, and it's like an untold history. It really is like an untold history of, of the, what was going on down there. It's, completely. It's, completely. It's, it's remarkable, and you guys have done tremendous work on this. Now, Thank you, you. Thank you very much. You, 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 talk in, you mentioned here, and I've mentioned too, this, uh, the documentary version of Grey Wolf. I guess give people sort of an idea of what that's all about and, and when they might expect it. Because I know I asked you off the air about it, but I'm sure they're going to want to know uh, now. Having well, well, we've still got some scenes to complete, um, and we're looking to raise the finance for that at the moment. As you know, making something um, in television um, is an expensive business. We've already spent a great deal of money. Um, what it does is it details the escape from Berlin, um, all the way to Hitler's death. Um, doesn't deal so much with Martin Bormann. It focuses on basically 12 key witness statements that we have to what Adolf Hitler got up to and where he was post-1945 um, and the two daughters. And um, we have a, a wonderful Argentine cast and crew working on it with us. And I hope very much that we'll have it complete later this year. And then um, we'll see who has it, which will be interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, aside from the people who've sort of dismissed the book out of hand in, in a foolish manner, you know, how has the reaction to the book been otherwise? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I loved it. I thought it was tremendous. So I'm, I'm hoping that is more the case in general. I mean, it, it's been nice for me because a lot of my peers in journalism have now read it. And um, from them saying, Gerard, come on, you, you're a complete nutter to do this story. Um, a lot of them have been swayed by it. The reaction has been interesting. It's either 100% we're completely wrong and why have we done this? Or it's the other way around. Thank you very much for exposing what can only be described as the greatest confidence trick of the 20th century. So the, the views have been polarized right down the middle. Um, you know, very few people have said, yeah, it's all right, it could have happened. Most people have said, 
Hitler died in 1945 in the bunker is proved. Well, it isn't. Martin Bormann died. The Germans DNA tested his body. Yes, but they were Germans and they had reasons for doing it. And so either people totally accept the accepted history and are not willing to question it one iota. Those with more open minds have read Greywolf and have looked at the depth of our research and the fact that we're reporting what has already been reported in many ways. We have simply put this story together. Um, both people, I think, are now convinced, as I am, that Adolf Hitler didn't die in a bunker in Berlin in 1945. Tremendous stuff. I hope it leads to even more. Well, I guess uh, that, that that's a good segue, I guess. What's, you're talking about a sequel to the book or a follow-up book. Talk about that. You know, what do you, what's the state, you know, where are you in the, in the, you know, in the work on that? Uh, Simon and I have been planning the sequel for um, some time. Um, it's called, at the moment, The Spider's Web, and the subtitle of that is How the Nazis Got Away with Mass Murder um, and Ran the Cold War. And it details in much more detail the involvement of American companies and um, American intelligence operatives with the Nazis and the creation of West Germany and the creation of the West German economic miracle. Um, at the same time, detailing how Martin Bormann ran this and more on the, um, the end, the decay of Hitler um, from information that we've received since Grey Wolf was published. And when do you expect that to be uh, in, in people's hands? Uh, it's, it's a long project. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we're probably a good 12 months away from, from that one hitting the stands. Okay, all right. Well, you're, well I'm going to have you back when that one comes out. Cause, uh, <laughs> I look forward to it, Tim. This has been a tremendous conversation. There's just so much more we can get into, and, and we've already gone over two hours here, and, and just I've, I've another one of these great conversations where I just can't believe we're still we're still going, the time has gone by so fast. Um, I, I just can't thank you enough. Gerard, for giving us so much time and, and really uh, giving us so much insight into this book, Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, The Case Presented. You can find out more about it at greywolfmedia.com. And, folks, I mean, I said it at the beginning of this conversation, but I, I, it bears repeating. If you're looking for, you know, the book that's going to really light up your mind over the next few months, especially as the weather gets a little better and you're going to be sitting out at the beach or sitting out in your backyard on your lounge chair, enjoying the weather. Go out and get Grey Wolf. This is an amazing book. I cannot recommend it enough. It is going in a prominent place in my library because I enjoyed it so much. And it's been a real thrill to have you on the show, Gerard, to talk about this and to uh, bring this story to light to all the BOA Audio listeners. So once again, thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you again in the future about these additional projects you guys are working on. Thanks very much, Tim. It's been my pleasure. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Gerard Williams for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to go out and get a copy of Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. Telling you folks, this is an amazing book, and if you want to find out more about it, head on over to the website greywolfmedia.com. Pretty simple, all one word, greywolfmedia.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And before we dive into the mailbag, let me plug a couple of appearances that I made this past weekend. Did a bit of an impromptu media blitz. First of all, I appeared on Paratopia, the Jeremy Vaney Jeff Ritzman vehicle that is closing up shop 
very, very soon. I was actually honored to be the final interview for Jeremy Vaney. So head on over to paratopia.org to pick up that conversation. And then following that, I made my long-awaited debut on the program Project Archivist, a very entertaining and really up-and-coming program hosted by a couple of guys named Lobo and Rojan. Very, very good conversation there. You can find that at projectarchivist.com. Check that out as well. Now on to the listener feedback. We'll kick it off here with an email from Gregor. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. The new season is fully satisfying my esoteric podcast habits so far, Tim. A very comprehensive overview of Nessie, followed by yet another amazing Jason Offutt interview. You are totally the man, and I promise I will make a donation as soon as I can. By the way, being a British expat and megalithomaniac, can you recommend any good stone circles slash similar ancient structures in your neck of the woods? Gregor. Thank you for writing in, Gregor. Your kind words are much appreciated. With regards to stone circles and ancient structures, well, I'm in the New England area, so i got to recommend America's Stonehenge. I believe that's in New Hampshire. I can't tell you too much about it, though. I haven't really explored it myself, but it is pretty popular among the uh, megalithomaniacs out there. And, of course, you got the ancient stone caverns in the Hudson Valley area. I had the opportunity to go out and visit those. Those are tremendous and very bizarre. So those are a couple of things you might want to look into. Stone Chambers and America's Stonehenge. Hopefully those will satisfy your interests. Next email comes from John in Plano, Texas, and here's what he has to say. My name is John, and I'm from Long Beach, California, now living in Plano, Texas. Recently, I was on YouTube and came across a video talking about a plan in which the Illuminati are going to launch a fake alien invasion in order to rally the people of Earth together against a common enemy, making it easier for them to then bring about a one-world government. It explained how the Illuminati realized that the people of Earth would never consciously agree to a one-world government, so they needed a plan to scare people to the point where they would actually want and even demand this. If you search YouTube under Fake Alien Invasion, there will be several videos that pop up. Check it out sometime. I would love to see if you could find a guest that knows about this, and we'll discuss it on your show. It's really scary stuff. Thanks. Big fan, John. Thank you for writing in, John. I am well aware of the Fake Alien Invasion story that you're talking about. You want to punch in Project Bluebeam into your Google machine, and you will be inundated with tons of stuff. The Project Bluebeam story has been going around for years and years and years. I'm not even sure where it started, but it is definitely part of ufology lore by now. That's something I think I'd like to pose to Nick Redfern, because I'm sure he is well-versed in the Project Bluebeam mythos. But I will put it down here in my notes for uh, future conversations and stuff to bring up with UFO researchers when we have them on the show. But for now, John, like I said, just punch in Project Bluebeam and you'll be just overwhelmed with materials concerning this alleged Illuminati plot. And yes, it is very scary, but also kind of exciting. It would be kind of neat if there was a alien invasion, fake or real. <laughs> 
Final email comes from Matthew, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Thanks for interviewing Jason Offutt. I'd never heard of him, but I loved all of the creepy tales he had, especially at the beginning. Maybe I was just in the right mood, but they were all like weird dreams, and I enjoy them a lot. One of the best shows you've done. Thanks, Matthew. I just plucked Matthew's email out of tons of emails that I got from people. That Offit interview, as expected, was an absolute barn burner. People loved that episode. I got tons and tons of feedback on that one from people who were just raving about the Jason Offit conversation. So thank you for writing in, Matthew. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And a lot of people were just taken aback by how creepy that episode was. So it was a real thrill for me and really a joy to have that episode put together here with Jason. So thank you to Jason for taking part in such a well-received program. And of course, thank you, Matthew, for writing in with your kudos with regards to the program. And on that note, we'll close the book on the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag. Thank you to Matthew, John, and Gregor for writing in. Hopefully I got some answers to the folks who had questions and sent them down the right paths. If you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, that's quite simple. There are a myriad of ways to get in touch with me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And the third big method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com, or just click the forum button at Banal of America. It is BOA's paranormal playground. Lots of discussion there on the world of the esoteric as well as pop culture. And we'd love to have you join in on the fun at the US of E. Of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention my presence on all these various social networks. So if you want to find me on Facebook or Twitter, just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you will find me quite easily there. And please check out the Benal of America group on Facebook. Like us on Facebook, and you'll be in line for some serious insights into what is coming up on BOA Audio. Up next, let's take a moment here and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. A couple of new pieces up at BOA since the last time you heard from me. We got a new column from Regan Lee. We've got something new from Leslie as well, and we've got a new piece from Tony Morrill that should be posted at BOA very, very soon. So head on over to the website and check out the offerings from the BOA staff. We say it all the time, my friends, but it bears repeating. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where we pass the basket around to the BOA Audio Hardcore listeners, the folks who are sticking around to the very end, and hear our call for donations. You just heard a nearly two-hour conversation with our friend Gerard Williams, who is all the way over in the UK. 
much like our Loch Ness Monster episode, this edition of the program certainly cost me quite a bit to record. I don't use fancy Skype and whatnot. I use a straight-up telephone line, long-distance call style, my friends. So that stuff definitely cost me some change. That's why I turn to you now and ask you to help us out by making a donation to Banal of America. How do you do that? That's simple. Head on over to the website and click the PayPal button. PayPal will walk you through the process. It's safe, simple, and secure. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail, you can do that by writing to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. The complete address, of course, can be found at Benal of America under the PayPal button. If you do mail in a donation to the P.O. Box, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, since my bank will not cash donations to BOA. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on the program, it is our landmark 200th episode of BOA Audio, and we have got, hopefully, what will be an amazing edition of the program to celebrate the big 2-0-0. I cannot even tease this one yet, folks, because we have not even taped it yet. I'm going to be taping it in a couple of days, but what I can tell you is the next edition of BOA Audio will feature the long-awaited return to the program of William Zabel. Not only has William Zabel gotten back to me, but he has accepted the invitation to return to the program. We have locked in an interview date and time, and I couldn't think of anybody better to really celebrate our 200th episode than William Zabel. He has become such a part of the fabric of this program. He really is residing in the top 10, if not top 5, most talked about episodes ever of BOA Audio. So who better to have on the show for the big 200th episode than William Zabel? Now, given that this is William Zabel, and he is prone to mystery and disappearance, obviously we have a very hefty back catalog of taped episodes so we will have something for you nonetheless should William Zabel turn incommunicado in the next few days. But as of now, it looks pretty solid that William Zabel will be sitting down with me in about 48 to 72 hours to tape his triumphant return to BOA Audio. I know a lot of folks out there are thrilled about this already. They're very excited to hear from William Zabel. We'll find out where he has been. We'll find out what he has been up to and we'll find out the latest research from the enigmatic and captivating William Zabel. That's next time on BOA Audio, our big 200th episode, as we solve the Zabel mystery once and for all. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Gerard Williams for coming on the show. Thanks to Gregor. John and Matthew for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. 
And, of course, super huge thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore VOA audio listeners. You've stuck with me all the way to the very end of yet another edition of the program. You guys are the best. I don't know what I would do without your support of this show. Thank you for making VOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Manal, thanking you for listening and signing off.